Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And today's episode is all about many happy returns. Mm. Many happy returns to you too. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that with other episode titles, unfortunately. No. Um, yeah, this is a uh, really interesting episode, one of actually one of the most unusual ones in how it's structured, how it behaves and... There's a lot of connections between this one and other episodes, I think, maybe partly because it was written by Anthony Skeen, who wrote A, B and C and Dance of the Dead, but also structurally it's quite similar to Chimes of Big Ben in some ways. There are links to several other episodes thematically, but even though, you know, to a great extent you could jumble the episodes of The Prisoner around in order, this one feels like it's got a lot of roots spreading out into the episodes mm. around it. And as with a lot of these episodes as well, there's a strong sense that the production order actually plays a, a role in some of the things we're seeing. Mm. So we have uh, characters who appear here who have appeared in previous episodes in the broadcast order and who will appear again. Uh, so actors who appear again in later episodes and also, I think we'll come on to it a little bit later on as well, there are the standard reuse of uh, various sets as well yeah. that uh, place it in some context. But um, yeah, to kick off, we thought we'd uh, cover a couple of the things that have been happening in between our episodes. Uh, we've had some lovely feedback again from people who are listening to the podcast. So thank you to everyone who is listening, subscribing and uh, getting in touch to tell us how much you're enjoying it. Um, it's really great to kind of get the conversation going about aspects of The Prisoner. And uh, I know a few people who are listening along, watching it for the first time as well, which is kind of cool. So we do try and keep the episodes relatively spoiler free for later episodes of The Prisoner. Um, but we'll always try and cover the connections that we think might be interesting in the later episodes rather than foreshadowing too much uh, that happens. So we'd like to thank everyone who got in touch via Twitter and email to uh, remind us of lots of examples which exist of that trope where the evil behind some sinister plot is actually a computer and how it ultimately gets disarmed as well, often in a slightly mundane manner. Our favourite ones were the use of that in uh, the film Alphaville, yeah. Uh, which yeah was a, was a great link not only to the episode but also to the prisoner generally. And also um, it was pointed out that uh, it appears numerous times in the original series of Star Trek yeah. as well. Um, yeah, lots of cases where a computer is ultimately um, undone by asking it too human a question <laughs> that, that it can't fathom. Yeah, so thanks to, um, I think that was, that was John who got in touch about those. Yeah. So in particular, we'd like to highlight one really uh, cool bit of information that came in from one of our followers on Twitter who is a guy called Thomas, who uses the handle Beyond Reason, mm -hmm. who told us about something that we'd never heard about before, which was an unofficial, completely unlicensed video game based on The Prisoner. So this was released, I think, back in 1980, and it was on the Apple II, and it's like a text-based adventure game, which does its best not to infringe copyright on The Prisoner <laughs> too much, whilst also remaining... Uh, completely derivative of what happens in the TV show. Uh, it, it uses the form of a secret agent who is given a uh, code name, which I think is just a hashtag. Yeah. And he has apparently resigned, if that 
seems familiar, <laughs> uh, from some job. And at the beginning of the game, you're given a resignation code, which is a three-digit number. Yeah. And you wake up in a place which is referred to as the island rather than the village. <laughs> and you basically use your keyboard and various shortcuts to move around the island and try and investigate exactly what's going on and try and find a way to get out. Yeah, it's really disorienting to play. Um, I mean, we're old enough to remember text-based video games when those were the video games that we had. But even going back and playing something like that is, you know, it's quite nostalgic. But the reason it's disorienting is that it constantly changes the rules of the game as you're playing it. So the way you move the little hashed symbol around, which represents your character on the screen, in one location uses certain keys and in another location uses other keys, but you're given no instructions of what any of the keys are and you just have to keep figuring it out. So you'll go to a new location and the keys you are using just stop working and you have to figure out what the new keys are. And there are little buildings, it's 20 buildings, just mm. given numbers around the island. And uh, some of them are, there's one that's the town hall. Mm. Um, I think there's one that is like number two's residence. And they're almost like little mini games that you go in and play, you might think of them now. But some of them, we just couldn't figure out what on earth we were meant to be doing. And I'm not even sure how we managed to leave the room at, at some point in one of them. I just pressed enough keys that eventually we managed to get out. Um, but the game warns you in advance. It gives you very little in the way of guidance, but it warns you that it's going to be a frustrating and long experience <laughs> to play the game. But there's only one way to lose and one way to win. The only way to lose is to give up your three-digit resignation code either deliberately or by being tricked into doing it mm. and the only way to win is to escape the island and needless to say we have not yet succeeded in escaping the island <laughs> yeah it's a really fun game and i think it's one of those things which you just basically want to sit at for a window of time when you need a lot of time to spare and i think you'll play around with it and you'll I don't know. Maybe people have made a lot of progress in it. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's been around a long time. I'd never heard of it before, but it's just so much fun just to lose yourself in it for a little while. But the problem is, you shouldn't close it and reopen it because I think the game resets in some way, mm. and you're then unable to uh, kind of uh, restart the game you had before unless you've saved it in the right save state. So it's a game that was released on the Apple II. There is a sequel that came out in 1982, which is a reworked version called Prisoner Two. They're both kind of fun if you're into The Prisoner or text-based video games. If you're <laughs> of that generation, it's really fun to have a go at. You can download the game and uh, uh, use essentially an, an Apple II emulator to have a go at playing it as well. Yeah, and if you've managed to make any progress on it, please let us know how you got on because uh, I think it's a really fun game and I like it as, a, as one of those things that clearly inspired somebody to have a go at utilizing some of the aspects of the prisoner to make a video game and yet do something interesting which is basically not to try and make a sort of scrolling video game or you know or some other iteration of video game based on the show they've they've done something just as obtuse and original as the original show so i think it's a fun it's a fun game to play around with what we'll do is we'll put a link to um, a couple of articles about it from wikipedia on the website which will accompany this episode so you can always have a click through there 
and um, it's quite easy with a bit of a Google search to find uh, copies of the game online and where you can find emulators to play it as well. Yeah. So enough about what we've been doing for the last week and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Shall we move into Many Happy Returns? We shall. And as always, we'll be talking about the episode, uh, the things that we find interesting, the things we find really cool, the the original kind of weird connections uh, that we think are worth talking about that you might be interested too. And afterwards, we have, as usual, uh, news from the world of the prisoner from Rick Davey from the Unmutual website. And also, as our special treat this episode, a interview with Nick Briggs from Big Finish Productions, who have done such wonderful work with the prisoner audio dramas and have recently announced that they're going to release volume three, which will take the number of additional prisoner audio episodes to 12 in total. And that's a really fun series. It it was a really fun chat with uh, Nick as well. And I think it's nice to listen to also in light of our 50th anniversary episode from last year where we interviewed Nick and Ian Meadows from Big Finish which talked about the series as a whole. So after you've finished uh, watching all the episodes of The Prisoner we think that you should really have a go at checking out the Big Finish productions as well because they're a wonderful addition to The Prisoner canon in some way. They're kind of adaptations or um, reimaginings of some episodes but also some wholly original takes as well. They're really great to listen to, and I think if you like the TV show, it's really worth giving the audio dramas a shot as well. Yeah, and Volume 2, which came out late last year, one of the episodes on there is an adaptation of Many Happy Returns called I Met a Man Today. And you might be wondering how on earth you would make an audio version of an episode where almost half of it is completely silent. Well, they've come up with a, a really clever way of framing and reimagining the story which is why we particularly wanted to talk to nick about this episode yeah so stay tuned for all of that after our chat all about many happy returns mm-hmm. Right, Many Happy Returns, written by Anthony Skeen, who also wrote A, B and C and Dance of the Dead, and directed by some fellow named Joseph Surf. Who would that be? Who could it be? Um, yeah, for the second time now, Patrick McGoon is using a pseudonym to direct the episode after using Paddy Fitz for Free For All. And originally it was going to be directed by Michael Truman, but he fell ill, or possibly fell out with Patrick McGowan, (laughs) uh, one or the other, um, before filming. So actually, Patrick took over and directed most of the episode himself. Yeah, and I think although we look at episodes of TV sometimes and say, wow, this was a groundbreaking episode of TV, I don't know enough about the history of television back in this era, but I think it's an extremely brave move on the part of the creative team behind this to actually produce an episode which, in a very limited run as well, starts off with, as we said earlier, an opening of sort of 20 minutes without any dialogue. Mm. Uh, And certainly it's just striking how, and we always say this with every episode, how each episode is kind of unique, has a different way of presenting things. And this one is great just because it plays around with its own conventions. Uh, It doesn't start off with um, the kind of opening that we've seen in any other episode itself. And it plays around with this central mystery uh, throughout the episode with a payoff, obviously, at the very end. But in the meantime, it does so many really 
cool things just to show that the prisoner was uh, a visual show. Mm. It had really clever ideas and it wasn't going to be a standard spy fi show every week. Mm. Um, it was going to break with the formats that were probably established in other shows, even in, in The Prisoner itself. And I just like the fact that it was it was bold enough to do this. And I think if you had this now, people would be saying this is the equivalent of when, you know, a show does a musical episode or, <laughs> or does a black and white episode. Yeah, or even in Buffy when they did the episode where nobody nobody speaks. Yeah. I mean, now we see these things as gimmicks. Mm. But I think at this time it was it was clear that they were using this for a very specific reason. And I think it just plays with the formula a little bit and keeps the show really fresh even after all these years. Yeah. I've read a few different theories about why he used the name Joseph Surf. I mean, Joseph was his, was his middle name, wasn't it? So that much seems obvious. Um, I think in Alex Cox's book, he theorises that maybe it's um, Patrick McGowan getting a bit annoyed at the way that he was being treated or perceived he was being treated by producers and financers and uh, sort of gave himself the name as if he was somehow being downtrodden by them all. Uh, there's also a few different places that mention this book called The Glass Bead Game, which I had never heard of before. It was written by Herman Hess, and the main character's name is Joseph Necht. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, because it's German. <laughs> um, but the translation of that is Joseph Servant, or Joseph Serf. Hmm. And... As I said, I've never read this, so this is me Wikipediaing the plot of the book. But it's set in a fictional European country several centuries in the future, where you have these intellectuals who are raised from boyhood in this one particular place to play this game called the Glass Bead Game, which has this incredibly dense and complex game with completely impenetrable rules that require knowledge that is sort of imparted to them from the time they start school and they're basically raised to be the people who play this game and it's about this character who rises to become the master of the entire game after years and years of working his way through the ranks and then resigns and walks away from it uh -huh. so i don't know maybe there's something to that yeah i was a bit more tangential i just remember joseph uh, from an old episode of the sarah jane adventures <laughs> which featured peter bowles who was in ah. a b and c also written by anthony skeen ah. It's almost as if they knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was too tangential. Um, so anyway, back to Many Happy Returns. That yes. was, was that our earliest tangent ever? Probably. Probably. I, I don't know. It'll get worse. Um, I think our last episode won't even be an episode about Fallout. It'll just be going off on some really bizarre tangent. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, this is one of those episodes which uh, doesn't feature... Uh, the voice of the episodes number two. Often that's the reason for that is they want to keep it uh, under wraps for obvious reasons. Mm. Uh, in this case, we have um, the voice of uh, Robert Reedy again. And in that shot where you see uh, the round globe-like chair rotating around, although we can see that there is a person in the chair, we have no idea um, who was in it. So this is one of those episodes where deliberately they are trying to keep the identity of number two secret in some way. Hmm. It begins with number six waking up in his cottage to find that there's no running water, there's no reception on the radio, there's no annoying PA announcements saying, good morning, everybody, wake up. <laughs> um, it's, it's just 
everything's off. There's no electricity. Everything's done. Yeah, it's it's jarring actually in that opening just because all of a sudden an episode starts without any sound. And we're so used to having him waking up in a routine after only a few episodes where it's as jarring for the viewer as it is for him. Mm. And as he looks outside, uh, following on from the fact that everything appears to be off, uh, there's no there's no power around or anything, um, he looks outside. And in one of these beautiful shots of Port Merion, you see the completely empty village. Mm. And we were in Port Merion recently. And, you know, if you're staying there in the village and you're there out of the official opening hours when tourists can come in and out, it is a very eerie place when it's empty. Mm. And even more so when you've seen an episode like this and you look outside from your room where you're staying in the village and it's completely empty. It just feels like you're at the start of many happy returns. <laughs> and it's strange because although we've associated people with being trapped in the village and, and those iconic looks of all the people in different costumes and umbrellas, it's remarkable how... This episode just shows shots of Port Marion that we haven't really seen in its emptiness since the very beginning, I think, of his arrival in the village, uh, where it was seemingly deserted until he uh, went to the cafe. Yeah, and there's all sorts of signs that people have almost got up and left in a hurry. Some of the tables are overturned out on the lawn. Yeah. There's no sign of, of anything having been of packed or planned everything's just abandoned all the food is still in the village shop um everything is is almost a sort of mary celeste style all the people have vanished mm. but everything else is still there yeah and notably the only other occupant of the village at this point is a black cat which mm. he sees outside now this cat appears a couple of times in this episode and i think becomes more prominent in the following one in broadcast order which is dance of the dead but it's kind of interesting that the cat is appearing here. I think there's more relevance to the presence of the cat in Dance of the Dead than here. But it's just a very eerie addition to uh, to the village. Yeah. He tries to make a call, which again is a bit like Arrival mm. when he first arrives. And there's there's nothing there and he, he tries to make a call out. Only this time there isn't even anyone on the other end of the line. No operator to ask him what his number is. It's just completely dead. And then he's still in his pyjamas at this point. Got snazzy striped pyjamas. Um, but he gets dressed and he still puts on his kind of uniform. Yeah. Are those the only clothes he has? Maybe they are. They could be. But I think it's notable that he is, in a way, you know, even though he knows that no one's around, he still decides to put on his clothes which have been presented to him as number six. I mean, he doesn't need to wear the jacket, for example. But he, he does dress up as as number six which is yeah it's an unusual choice because he's somebody who's so resistant to being identified in that way and yet he has in this case um decided to uh retain that personality as he looks around so it's clear that he must even be thinking he's being watched in some way but yeah it's a bit weird and in another echo of arrival he goes up the clock tower yeah now i love this bit because i well, this is complete nonsense, what I'm going to say. But I would love to think that in an alternate reality of what's going on, some kind of weird time loop, I would love it if him going up in the bell tower and ringing the bell was actually the person who he saw at the beginning of arrival. Oh. I don't know why. I think it would be really cool if it turned out that him ringing the bell here was actually linked to 
the person he sees up in the bell tower because he goes up I think in that episode doesn't he and he yeah. looks and there's no one there yeah um, it's complete nonsense it's a kind of trope which would be in a much lesser TV show which is probably why I've come up with it <laughs> but um, I think it would be a really fun way uh, to do that it's, and it's, it's one of those things where I just love these scenes where they are echoing things that have happened in previous episodes of The Prisoner but they just kind of turn them on their head a little bit on one hand him doing this is very strange after arrival that seems so long ago and yet it's a reminder that the village is a very strange place and i think as a setting it shows that it's that there's a lot of character within the village mm. you know stripped of its residence it's still a very very unusual place and i think the idea of the village as a character in this really comes to the fore and certainly his attempts to escape from it um are not motivated by uh, a threat from people within the village and I think that just makes it even more imposing that he is trying to get out of of the village itself. Mm. Um, he's not, you know, he's not making a break for it to get away from uh, from the people there. What was that Stephen King book where people become out of phase in time with everybody else, and so it it seems like everybody else is gone, but actually they're they've been kind of shifted. They're just out of phase with real time, and so can't. I can't remember which Stephen King book it is. Is that the um the one at the airport? Yeah, they they I think they're all passengers in a on a plane and they fall asleep and they end up out of phase with everyone and they land at an airport and then I think they realise that time is gonna kind of encroach and destroy them or something. Well I'm sure somebody listening will be able to help us out with this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you that could be a way that it loops around and he's the person that he saw, but he doesn't see anyone else there. Yeah. He's, uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Anyway. Yes. But I, I was thinking that all these similarities with the opening of Arrival might mean more if this had been the season one finale. Mm. Because it was effectively bookending season one. It was filmed last out of I know there isn't really a season one and season two, but if there had been and they had put those episodes out and then done a full 13 episode season two, mm. this was the last one filmed and could have been the last one, if not once upon a time. And it would have bookended it in a way of this silent opening wandering around the village. In the same way, I think, actually, I kind of like what uh, Big Finish did using it as the opening of volume two. Because mm. I think it makes a very good sort of season opener to a series mm. by sort of reflecting what happened in the previous season opener but turning it on its head so yeah it's just a good episode it can go anywhere <laughs> but it works very well as a season one finale a season two opener or indeed any other episode of the prison <laughs> yeah so he he rings the bell in the um bell tower but nobody comes out so the village is clearly completely deserted. And again, that the, the bell ringing is one of the first big sounds that you hear on mm. arrival. It's very jarring. Um, but this time it's him making a racket and it's not doing anything. There's no one there. Yeah, and he even goes, I think, all the way to number two's house where there's always somebody there. Uh, the butler will open the door or something. And there is no one there at all. It's completely it's completely empty. I think he sees an empty, an empty mini-moke taxi. Mm. Um, it's all just very weird to show all these iconic things in the show but without any people around and you realize that 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 was 
that the character in the show was always the village as well as the people in it as well. Yeah. I like the fact that when he goes to the Green Dome, the automatic doors don't open automatically. He has mm. to prise them open because yeah. all the mechanisms have been shut down. Yeah. It just feels like all of a sudden the it is a ghost town, like you say. Everything's just been abandoned and it makes it very eerie. And I think it, it sets up potentially his, his whole decision-making process here because it, it completely wrong-foots him, I think, by you know by suddenly having a situation where everyone is gone i mean this is a place which has you under full surveillance all the time there's people watching you everywhere you go even the statues are watching you and to inactivate all of that it's just there to mess with him mm. which is really cool but you do still get really lovely shots of i, th- I think there's one of like a, a stone eagle that's mm. up on top of one of the the plinths or on one of the buildings and it seems like the village architecture is still watching him even mm. if there is no one there yeah, it just feels like the magic has been taken away from this place and he's seeing it for what it is. And yeah, I just like the idea that this is being used as a way to explore how, you know, how he would view his original plan, which he comes up in the first couple of episodes, which is I'm going to escape and come back and destroy mm. the place. <laughs> you know, I think he genuinely feels this is his chance, um, especially which is strange given that obviously he's had attempts at this kind of thing in uh, in previous episodes where you know, his objective is to get out of the village. Mm. There was a really wonderful article on the BBC News website about two months ago. Um, I'm not going to go into the whole story because it's really long. And if you're interested, definitely go and read the article. It's called The Holiday Village Run by Spies. And it's on BBC News. And it's a story about this diving resort in the Sudan on the shore of the Red Sea that was actually being run by Israeli spies and they were using it as a front for a well, a people smuggling operation, effectively. They were smuggling people out um, of the area and to Israel. Um, so they, they would go out at sea and they would pick people up at sea. They would drive them uh, through the desert to where they would have planes surreptitiously landing um, and, and get people out. And for years, they ran this resort as if it was a real resort. It had glowing reviews from (laughs) tourists who stayed there. Um, They had a lot of um, local people working there who had no idea what the reality of the resort was. But they were constantly under threat of being found out, obviously, because you can't just go around landing planes and driving (laughs) boats out into the ocean and no one noticed what's happening. And uh, in the end, when their cover was blown, the people who were running it just left they they just drove off got on the last plane and left and there were still tourists in the resort um there were still local people working in the resort and they all woke up the next morning and the other people were just gone mm. they, they just vanished with no explanation um it's an incredibly prisoner-esque story um and there's way more to the story than all that mm. so yeah if you're interested the article is the Holiday Village Run by Spies. Yeah, we'll put a link on the website in the show notes for the, yeah. what we're talking about today. So, number six, he is still continuing to kind of rifle through what's going on uh, in the village. There are some really unusual things. So he, firstly, when he drives around in the little taxi, um, it's great to have these shots of the mountains around him. And this mm. is the first time I think you realise that the uh, 
the map which he's given in in Arrival, which basically has uh, the village surrounded by mountains, is actually pretty accurate. You're getting a sense <laughs> of the of the geography of this place for real. And he he hits these mountains and he realizes that it is cut off. So there's obviously um, a coastal side to uh, to the village, which is obviously the same as in uh, Port Marion, because you can run along the beach and and uh, you know wave your fist in the air and shout, <laughs> "I am not a number." Um, but I love the fact that he just sees these sort of misty mountains surrounding everything. And he's completely cut off from everything. And then when he goes to the village store, which again is abandoned, what I think is really interesting here is going back to the fact that he puts on his prisoner jacket when he um, he gets some uh, supplies from there, doesn't he? He takes like a camera, a couple of other things, and uh, he actually leaves a note behind saying, I owe you some work units. Well, 964, nine, work 964 work units. 964 <laughs> work units. Number six. Mm. And it's interesting that he never really acknowledges that he is going to be referred to as number six. He's always defiant about it. And in the same way that he put on his prisoner jacket when he starts wandering around, even though he knows that the village appears to be empty, it's interesting that he signs off this message as number six. Mm. Yeah. And then he puts his woodworking skills to good use. (laughs) Um, but he doesn't have to be so surreptitious about it this time. So it's a slightly more impressive raft that he builds. Yeah, it's not the same as the uh, the art exhibition item from Chimes of Big Ben. Yeah, he's sort of openly cutting down a lot more trees, getting <laughs> empty oil drums to make it float. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, so it's, it's a much sturdier raft that he he's going to take out to see this time. And as he's going around the deserted village, I think there was one scene in the original script that never ended up being filmed but where he goes back to the hospital at first he sees you know the purple corridor where all the people were mm. sitting on the floor yeah. um, but there's nobody there and he finds like empty straight jackets <laughs> and then he finds sort of lab rats so he releases them all um, out of their cages but evidently it never made it into the uh, the final shooting script but it was in the original script before he goes he uses the camera to take photographs of all the buildings in the village. And it's a bit like being a tourist in the morning in Port Marion, <laughs> where you're thinking, oh, look at that building, snap. Oh, look at that building, snap. <laughs> Except he's taking it to document the reality of this place. Yeah. So that he has some kind of tangible proof of its existence yeah. to take with him. Um, and he cleverly takes the film out, bags it in plastic and puts it in his pocket. Yeah. But one thing that I did wonder is he gets the camera and the film and everything from the village shop. Why do they even have them? Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. But is it... I'd never thought about that, but now you mention it. Given that there's an element of the village setting him up, is that part of the ruse they're trying to create? (laughs) Because often they do have these moments where they will not break him... Uh, very obviously, they will do something that makes him have the illusion of being free, the illusion of being about to win, and they take it away. It's much like when Anton Rogers number two allows the helicopter to take off at the end of Schizoid Man and then return. Mm. Yeah, he knows full well that he's number six and not number twelve, and you know, he knows about the switcheroo, but he still likes the idea of one last time playing with number six and giving him the illusion of freedom and here you just wonder if this is uh setting up the idea that the 
whole series of events that follow are in some way engineered by the village. So is this part of the game they're playing where they know that he's going to try and leave and they're trying to make it seem even more obvious by giving him access to things that he feels will maybe make him a little bit overconfident? You know, he'll think, oh, I can document this and then take it back wherever I can get to and uh, and expose what the village is all about. Hmm. I've got to say, if if they were expecting him to do all of this in the same way that they were able to sort of second guess what he was going to do in Simon's Big Ben, it's an incredibly, it, it seems to be an incredibly dangerous thing to let him go off to sea in this you know, it's sturdier than last time, but it's still a pretty rickety vessel to be taking out. Because um, he could really easily die. Yeah. It didn't look like there was anyone following him or surveilling him or making sure that they could get there if he suddenly fell in the water. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing because obviously the village overlords are often saying that they don't want to damage number six, he's too important. Mm. And yet by allowing this plan to take place, they are potentially putting him... Uh, at risk of any kind of natural event that could take place. But it does make you wonder whether everything that happens subsequently, like even him being captured by the gun runners later on, maybe that's all that's all rigged in some way. So as he's hitching off his raft and heading out to sea, he sees the black cat again, which is a bit of a bad omen. Mm -hmm. Um, First he hears a noise, he hears something break, and he looks around and he's clearly thinking, oh, have they they let me get as far as actually casting my boat off before they all Mm -hmm. jump out and yell surprise? But it isn't anyone come to get him, it's just the black cat who seems to have broken a pot of some kind yeah. and is just hanging around up by the old folks' home. Yeah, and it's it's clear that he's taken a few things with him on the way. Um, it's notable he's taken some village-branded food and, and supplies with him. So he clearly knows that he's not sure how you know how long he's going to be gone at yeah. sea. Or he wanted a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfectly plausible. Um, but again, following up on what we've seen in previous episodes he is starting to show his resourcefulness as almost like a grown-up Boy Scout. Um, (laughs) MacGyver. Yeah, he is is MacGyver. Um, We've seen him, obviously, as we said, make the the raft, the art exhibit raft in Chimes of Big Ben. Um, Here we see him do things like make a compass out of uh, a magnet in the radio and a needle or village needles everything is branded it's very it, it's very yeah they're very proprietary about everything they have <laughs> um and as he's stuck at sea you know he's there he's 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 he, he's shaving at one point he's making notes of how many days are passing and in a way that's kind of important because an event later on does actually give this episode a very specific time as well yeah but also when when he's making the the notes He's using a folded up copy of the tally-ho. Mm. Hey. Uh, that's got the headline, What are the facts behind Town Hall? Mm. Uh, mysteriously, we've never seen that headline before. Yeah. But he folds over into a sort of miniature booklet to make his chart. But when he writes the day on the page, it takes up like two thirds of the page. 
I mean, you wouldn't write it that big with your handwriting. To be honest, you wouldn't use the word day. <laughs> Just write the numbers. Or do a tally chart. I don't know. So- gigantic, gigantic. Day 18. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's he's, he's got like a sliver of paper left at the bottom to write where his notes are supposed to be. <laughs> what's going on there? So he's... Um, I'm just thinking about that now. <laughs> yeah, what was the logic behind that? Um, so uh, whilst he's at sea, he you know, he intermittently passes out, and he gets boarded by gun runners who um, you know find the raft. They board it and they steal, I think, a lot of his possessions. And yet they throw him overboard. He's left floating in the water, and uh, they try and make a break for it. But you know, as with a lot of these things, we've already seen in previous episodes that number six is a very good swimmer. Mm. And uh, he's able to survive, and he actually is able to reboard uh, the ship himself. And by doing that, he work. You know, he realizes that he's on he's on a ship which is run by gun runners. Yeah, speaking is it German? Yes, speaking. Yeah, yeah. Because you get a you do get a couple of lines of dialogue, but it's not subtitled. So in some respects, although it is dialogue, it doesn't feel like dialogue when you're watching it. It feels like more ambient sound because we're not given any way of understanding it unless you already speak German yeah. well, I mean some of it you can pretty much work out and it allows you to basically be watching the episode and unaware of whereabouts he is at this point just as he would be confused about the whole thing you're you're at sea so you don't know where anyone's from anyway yeah. they're speaking German which throws you because there's been no reference to that so far it's just all a bit it's all just designed to create a sense of confusion. He knows he's going somewhere, but he has no idea where he is. And the fact there's no English dialogue in it at this point, it just makes it all the more disorientating. Yeah. yeah. So he climbs on board the ship at the back and hides out inside while the two gun runners are making themselves a supper with the stolen village food tins that they took from his raft. Yeah, so I, I've been thinking about this and I... I'm pretty certain that is what's happening, but you cannot rule out that if this is a ruse uh, designed by the village to allow him to escape, whether they already had these things as well. Um, it's you know, is it actually explicit that the rations that they are eating are from his crate or? Well, it. I don't think so. No, I mean, it does create a visual connection between mm. them and the village with both possible explanations mm. because you could say oh they are village agents who were deliberately there to pick him up mm. when he you know passed out or they were just eating his supplies mm. and and this was a real escape attempt it mm. could be either yeah i love the ambiguity that you're seeing it because i think you never know even when you're outside the village you don't know whose side anyone is on mm. and i think it just makes everything quite paranoid because as a viewer, you're not sure if these people are agents of the village or they just happen to be gun runners who have picked him up. You just don't know. And I love the ambiguity in this. Yeah. So now now he's on the ship, which is this... We haven't got to Checkmate yet, uh, which is a future episode, but this is also the Polotska. Mm. And, but, but I don't know if that's meant to actually imply something about the ship or that they just used the ship twice to film on (laughs) because they're not going to go and get another ship are they but one thing that sort of is quite sad I guess is that his raft that he so lovingly made just floats out to sea (laughs) to uh, to who knows what end rather like the actual raft did in real life apparently really 
Yeah, I was reading the uh, the Rob Fairclough book, The mm. Official Guide, and it said that they were filming bits in the Irish Sea, and there was a boat that was towing the raft for filming, but the raft was really heavy, and the boat that was towing it, its engine caught fire, <laughs> and the raft started dragging the boat down, and it was filling with water, so they had to cut the raft loose mm. to save the boat. Uh, and then apparently the raft just drifted off, and... They tried searching for it afterwards, but no one ever found it. That's the ultimate prisoner find. <laughs> Somewhere out there is number six's raft floating around. Probably got a colony of seagulls living on it now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're back on board the ship, and uh, it's interesting as, as number six is looking around, uh, he goes to one cabin and he finds a crate that's filled with guns. Yeah. And it's notable that although he looks inside and he sees that it's filled with guns, he doesn't take any of them. Mm, so yeah. this is one of those strange moments where it, it throws me a little bit because I start to wonder why he didn't take one. Um, he rarely, I mean, they rarely have guns being used in the show anyway. But it's it's interesting that if he was really a secret agent, would he not have taken a gun to, to protect himself? Or is it so, you know? Or is this one of the arguments that suggests that yes, he was very high up in some kind of government position that he wasn't somebody who was involved in going around shooting people? Yeah, because he's clearly very good at fighting. He's he's clearly good at some elements of espionage and woodwork. And woodwork. Um, you would think that he would at least be able to tell if the guns were loaded or if there was ammunition there that he could mm. put in them, and that it's probably the best way to defend himself or attack the gun runners. Or take over the ship. And yet, he doesn't even seem to consider it. Yeah, He just looks at it and says, oh, that's what they're doing. And moves on with a, a different plan, a smarter plan, yeah. I guess. Not the obvious plan. But it's... it's uh, I mean, obviously we haven't got to future episodes that involve similar such things <laughs> yet so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna continue that thought um but we will refer back to this in the future i think yeah this is this is the work like you say of somebody who may have had a job involving gathering information rather than acting on it i suppose but yeah like you say his plan although one would expect a character to take one of the guns to protect themselves against an attack what he does is he obviously leaves them behind, but then he does something which actually will attract their attention anyway. Yeah. So his plan is to start a fire in the galley. So I think he uses like a, a rag and some oil in a pan on the stove, sets it on fire, then covers it with a cloth to put the fire out and create a lot of smoke and then hides in the next room knowing that one of the two men at least one of the two men is going to come down to investigate what the heck's caught fire in the galley. Yeah, and the first one uh, comes down to investigate what's going on and Six emerges and knocks him out. Yeah. And then the second one comes down and that leads to the standard issue ITC fist fight that takes place <laughs> in a corridor. But again, it's notable that he ties them up, but he doesn't kill them yeah. or harm them. He just incapacitates them. Um, or as it turns out, not so much incapacitates them. Uh, but he he doesn't seem to have any intention of um, of harming them. Yeah. And I'm just now going to completely go back on what I said earlier. <laughs> not only do you do tangents, but you do complete reversals of opinion as well. 
um, when you see them in uh, the front of the boat, they're drinking whiskey, aren't they? I think so. And then you see Six when he's in the galley. And I've just realised, actually, you never actually see any other village branded stuff. So what they own yeah. is not village branded. Yeah. Um, otherwise, everything would be village branded. Yeah. Uh, or at least, well, the whiskey wouldn't be alcoholic. You know that. <laughs> That's true. So I suppose this is maybe an argument that suggests that they are eating his provisions mm. rather than eating their own, which are also village branded because they're from the village. But I don't know. I was just thinking about that. I thought, <laughs> you know, who else knows what we're going to reverse our opinion on? <laughs> Anyway, now that he's in control of the ship, he sees a light from a lighthouse um, up ahead and starts heading for it. But unbeknownst to him, the gunrunners have started to wake up and uh, get themselves out of their predicament. Yeah. Yeah, so they untie themselves. They can't get the door open because he's chained it shut, but they can kick through the panelling in the cupboard. Narnia style. Yeah, (laughs) to emerge into the next room. And sneak up the stairs behind him. So cue classic ITC fisticuffs on the deck of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> so they sort of come round the back of the deck and jump into the cabin to attack him. He sends one of them flying down the stairs, back down below deck again. Um, and the other, they start brawling out on the open deck of the ship, variously kicking each other in the face and trying to smack each other with whatever comes to hand. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other guy gets back into the cabin and he does go for a gun Mm. which is in one of the drawers and comes out and tries to shoot number six he probably jumps into the water and swims away Um, because as he said earlier he's a strong swimmer so the only person who wields a gun in this entire uh, part of the story is the bad guy yeah so it's approaching dawn i think and and you see that the gun runners just kind of go away they clearly I'm not sure whether they, you know, whether Six has got away or whatever. They just make a break for it themselves. Uh, Six himself wakes up uh, on a stony beach somewhere um, in front of some some cliff faces. I'm not sure where this is meant to be. He's at the lighthouse, which he saw uh, earlier on, I presume, and he just checks that he's still got the uh, the roll of film that he took from the camera, where he took loads of pictures documenting what was, you know, what he could see in the village, etc. So he clambers his way up the cliffs and starts wandering. Uh, at this point, he clearly doesn't know where he's washed up. I mean, it could be absolutely anywhere because he doesn't know where the village itself was. Um, only that presumably it's not in Lithuania like Nadia told him it was. <laughs> <laughs> and the first person he encounters is a Romany gypsy hmm. who just sort of ignores him and he starts following him and his dog to wherever they're going. Uh, and eventually he's going to his camp where um, there are several other people as well. And again, this this completely disorients the viewer because they could be Romany gypsies living pretty much anywhere in Europe. So it still doesn't tell you where he is or tell him where he is. Um, And you've still got all the the lines of dialogue that are being spoken being in a foreign language without subtitles. Yeah, so you just have... No idea. It's a very bold move because at this point you're starting to wonder where this episode is really going to go. Um, I think it's clear that you know that he's not going to ultimately, you know, win in this episode, whatever <laughs> that means. But it's it's clear that they are 
more interested in making the viewer experience things through number six's experience than just allowing the viewer to watch a series of events. It's meant to throw you off guard. It's meant to make you feel very confused about things. And you are genuinely, I think, unsure where he's landed. I mean, you've dealt with the German-speaking uh, gun runners and then uh, the Roman gypsies here, and you don't understand anything they're saying here, and he just looks confused. And yet he still tries to converse with them mm. um, in English to see um, you know, if they can tell him where he is. Yeah, in fact, the first words he says are, where is this? <laughs> uh, which again kind of echoes, where am I yeah. in the village? Where is this? No one can, no one here can tell him. Yeah. And he's, um, again, I mean, he just, he just follows this stuff up. I think he asks, you know, where is this place? And he's asking for a road, you know, it's just something that will guide him somewhere in mm. some way. Um, yeah, I just love the fact that they just refuse to, they refuse to give, give the audience anything here. Mm-hmm. You're just as lost as he is. It's almost like you've just been thrown around in the sea and you've just washed up and you're not sure. And you don't know where he's going to end up. And I think the fact that they then decide to uh, reveal that he is actually back in England, Mm. it throws you even more. Because on one hand, you're thinking, well, actually, it's kind of luck that he ends up here. Yeah. But it, again, plays with the idea of, well, you know, was this, you know, was it luck or was some way this whole thing kind of shaped to make him end up being in a place where it's clear the village already have their their talons extending into uh, into his former his former life. Mm. So he heads off through the woods in search of something that's going to lead him anywhere. <laughs> and then you have this wonderful shot where he's he suddenly ducks down through the trees because walking along the road is a very distinctive British Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sort of see him come into shot with the helmet, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, he's in England. Yeah, it's the equivalent of that, you know, in a. In an American film where all of a sudden they will, they'll have like a, a London bus, a red London bus go past <laughs> or a black cab go, you know, all these, all mm. these very uniquely iconic things. It's wonderful that they just have this, uh, this policeman just kind of stand right in the middle of the frame and all of a sudden you, you know, you're aware of where he is. And I think it just takes the episode in a, in a new direction. Yeah. And also there's something very mundane about the sight of a generic British Bobby mm. in the famous hat and everything mm. like that. And yet this makes it incredibly sinister. And it's it's something that I occasionally keep coming back mm. to, this kind of sinister, mundane thing where it takes really ordinary, everyday aspects of British life and makes them deeply disturbing in a in a level that you can't quite put your finger mm. on. There's something not right about it. And indeed, he instinctively hides from the police uh, who are stopping traffic on the road for some reason Mm. because he either thinks that they're looking for him or is just so afraid that anyone might be looking for him that he doesn't even want to take the risk. Yeah. It's it's not like he's just going to walk up to them and say, oh, can you help me, please? I got kidnapped a few months ago (laughs) and I've been on this weird island somewhere and now I've just washed up on the beach. Yeah, even though he's he's seemingly gotten away from the village, it plays into the idea that we don't know which side the village was on, and he knows that what you know whatever has led him to where he is now, he cannot trust anyone. Maybe because he knows that he's never been closer to home than before, 
um, that he's you know, he's got his eye out for things, and any kind of authority figure is going to be potentially the enemy. Which I think is just a nice way that they uh, they again they suck you into Number Six's viewpoint rather than just watching the episode as a, as a normal episode of television. Yeah, and the way they make a, a sort of authority figure, but who is someone that you should be able to go to for help, hmm. be someone that he desperately has to avoid because he doesn't know if it's going to be the right kind of help that's going to be offered to him. So he's gone from trusting complete strangers enough that when the Roman Gypsies offered him some food, he took it, mm. to being immediately distrustful of someone who um, is in, in any way representative of the norms of society and uh, the authority within society, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there are clearly some strange judgment calls he makes during the episode you know the people he chooses to trust and the people he doesn't choose to trust and Mm. that almost does seem to be you know in some way an error that he seems to make throughout the episode he's on it's so disorienting for him to be you know back on home soil that he he becomes a little bit less guarded which is strange because obviously he's had this experience before in the chimes of big ben where he seemingly got back home but here it's it's the strangeness of looking around and seeing this is not you know him waking up inside a box in an office in london this is him actually being in in sort of the real environment so he knows that anything could turn at any moment so who do you trust who do you not you know who do you not trust Hmm. so he Jumps on the back of a Netco van, <laughs> that, that that famous company, Netco. <laughs> uh, and there's actually a, a missing scene here. Well, it's not really missing, it was in the script, um, but never made it into the finished episode, where he falls asleep in the back of the van on his way to London and dreams that the van is driving him through an alien landscape. Really? Yeah. Does it Does it mention how that was meant to be portrayed or...? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I assume that they never actually shot any of it. Mm. That it was just in the original script. Um, it'd be interesting to know if, if anyone had any more about, like if it was ever storyboarded out or something mm. like that, as to what the alien landscape was going to look like. <laughs> so he's um, he's in the truck. He wakes up and he uh, jumps out at what, Marble Arch. Yeah. And actually the first, having just said that the first thing he sees is a, is a big red London bus go past. <laughs> <laughs> a big red London bus and then literally Marble Arch. Yeah. So we know where he is. Yeah. And I love the fact that the first thing he sees as he's kind of wandering around is um, a couple of tourists taking photos. Yeah. Which is kind of exactly what he was doing as he as he left the village. But it almost is, in a strange kind of way, that's just as iconic as anything else in London, like lots of tourists taking pictures. But the fact that they take pictures as tourists, but they're free to come and take pictures of things. Mm. And I think it just contrasts that he was taking these pictures as a as a way to document something, which is not, you know, a fun experience or anything like that. <laughs> this was him trying to uh to capture a deserted area where he was being held captive. Yeah. And I guess it must be is it is it instinct or curiosity that makes mm. him go to his old house? Um, I don't know what he's expecting to find there, or maybe he's just so lost at this point that it's like a homing instinct. I mean, I suppose he's either going to go back home or to his place of work. And initially, I suppose he would avoid his place of work because we already know what's happened in Chimes of Big Ben. Mm. You know, he went there 
or seemingly got there and he knew that people who he thought he could trust were turning on him. So whether they were real or whether they were, you know, clones of the people he was meant to interact with who were being mm. held in the village, it's you know, it's unclear. So maybe home just seems uh, the safer option. Yeah, so um, he heads for his old house, which is what, number one Buckingham Place. Yeah. And knocks on the door and a maid answers, but it's not a village maid. Yeah. But it is, again, that visual cue, yeah. that call back to it. He asks to speak to the master of the house and she informs him that her mistress is not there. Yeah. Their brief conversation here is very telling because he's expecting to speak to the man of the house, master mm. of the house, whatever. And she tells him that actually her mistress isn't there, so clearly it's a woman who um, owns the house or is, is living there. It's that thing of expecting it to be a male number two and it's actually mm. a female number two. Because obviously we've we've seen a female number two at the very end of Free For All um, and there will be female number twos to come, mm. but you're not necessarily expecting um, there to be a female number two where you would normally see a male number two yeah. in the story. So as he's uh, leaving after his brief exchange with the maid, you know, he's standing outside and he sees his old lotus pull up and he sees a woman jump out of it and run into the house. And she's clearly uh, the mistress of the house, who is revealed to be a lady known as Mrs. Butterworth. Mm. And he immediately interrogates her, uh, mainly to find out exactly uh, what she's doing with his car in his house. <laughs> Yeah, he, he reels off the engine number, I think, in order to prove that he, he knows about it and explains that he built the entire car with his own hands. And I do wonder if it's if it's part of this element of him trying to begin to come to terms with the fact that he may actually be in the real world. Hmm. Um, I suppose he's probably so used to the sensory confusion that comes from being in the village that maybe... Now he wants to be 100% sure that the things he's seeing and experiencing are real. So it's interesting that the first thing he comes across is something as iconic as his car that we've seen presented in the opening of every episode. It's like, you know, that's that's part of him. The fact he built it with his own hands as well, it's something that to him would be an ultimate proof. It's not, you know, it's something that he can be certain of as being evidence that he is in the original house, you know, with the original car, etc. You know, it's how do you, you know, how do you prove to somebody um, and gain their trust, you know, that they're in a specific place or, or this is calm? Well, you give him the one thing that would be easy for him to recognise and be able to prove to himself that there's no other way that this could be fake. Yeah, and he's initially quite brusque, both with her and with the maid, actually. Um, quite rude when he starts talking to them and then he he almost sort of realizes that he's not being very good mannered and it's like he's been in the village for so long mm. and he's so used to having these antagonistic conversations even mm. with complete strangers mm. that he suddenly sort of course corrects himself and thinks oh actually i'm in london and these are just random people mm -hmm. he thinks um so i should actually not come across as a raving lunatic who hasn't showered in 25 days. <laughs> <laughs> and what we should say here, uh, so the first appearance of Mrs. Butterworth in the episode. Now, we have seen, well, maybe not Mrs. Butterworth, but we have seen the actress Georgina Cookson, who mm. plays her in a previous episode. So she appears in the episode A, B and C, also written by Anthony Skeen. And she appears in the final dream sequence in the episode when Madame Ongadine 
introduces number six to another woman at the party and uh the woman there is is georgina cookson yeah. now it's interesting to think about what's going on it, i suppose we're not revealing too much by skipping ahead towards the end of the episode it calls into question a little bit about whether this is you know standard issue reuse of a of an actor or actress uh, in a tv episode mm. or if there's some meaning behind this exchange that she has with number six in a b and c and her appearance now in many happy returns yeah and and these are two episodes where we know for certain that a b and c comes before many happy returns because many happy returns was both filmed afterwards and broadcast afterwards yeah. so there's no confusion she she appears in a b and c first and then turns up as Mrs. Butterworth. Yeah, and the whole point of A, B, C, and C is that Six is able to recognise characters within it who reveal their identities. Obviously not the final character, but he knows who A and B and C are. He remembers them from his life before his abduction into the village. Yeah. So in this case, he doesn't recognise um, Georgina Cookson's character, implying he hasn't met her before, which means that this is likely... Uh, to take place after that. So the first time he met her potentially was in that dream. So the the question is, how did she end up in the dream? Yeah. It could have just been that they cast her in it. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting that they would cast someone and then have them play... Well, I mean, we can say, can't we, that she's number two later on. But then the same thing will happen in this episode in Hammer into Anvil. Yeah. Um, But also, I mean, because... A, B, and C, because it happens in a dream, and parts of the dream are being inserted into his mind by the the drugs and the computer system that's playing off the footage, that she could have been inserted there by number two or number 14 into the dream. Yeah. Why, I have no idea. She could be someone from number six's memory that he then just doesn't think about or pay much attention to or expect to see opening mm. his own front door in London. Or it could be that... She actually was at one of Madame Margadine's parties, yeah. spying on people as a spy for the village herself, yeah. or a spy in whatever her former life used to be. Yeah, I think there is something. There's something to that because they, well, number two and number fourteen in A, B, and C, uh, don't insert anyone outside of the characters they're trying to introduce to see if he's going to sell out uh, his secrets or whatever. Yeah. So. Well, I've always got that to imply that the other characters he sees might actually be people who he may have interacted with at one of Ongadine's parties. Now, it's perfectly plausible that he did come across uh, Mrs. Butterworth at one of these things. Uh, But also there is the confusion and the kind of, you know, the the strange drug-induced haze that takes place (laughs) that implies that Things may be happening in the stream, obviously, that are uh, reflections of reality or confusions of his own subconscious. So, you know, it's hard It's hard to know exactly what's going on, but I think, yeah, it's notable that they use her again, given that she had such a minor role in a previous episode, but a pivotal one, mm. actually. I mean, it's, it's strange that Ongadine, who turns out to be pivotal in A, B and Z, actually introduces him to... Uh, Georgina Cookson's character. Yeah. And now she reappears. But he obviously doesn't recognise her directly. 
but whether he remembers all these little details from the dream sequence, it's it's hard to know. Hmm. What's the date? Saturday, March the 18th. Tomorrow's my birthday. You're an odd fella. Sorry, you, uh, uh, you must think I'm crazy. Who isn't these days? Okay, so they have a little chat on her doorstep, or his doorstep, the doorstep, <laughs> do the house, uh, to eventually she invites him in. They talk about the car, the fact that it's always overheating in traffic, mm. which is a nice little thing that gets recalled in the big finished production as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she asks him who he is, and at first he says that he's an exile, mm. which could be from what? From mm. everywhere, maybe, from his life, from existence. Uh, and then it says his name is Smith, Peter Smith. <laughs> now, people who are fans of Doctor Who will know that the Doctor's pseudonym is the equally mundane John Smith. <laughs> so it's, it's a fairly standard, innocuous pseudonym to go for and clearly isn't actually really his name. And I like the fact that when Mrs Butterworth shows him in to, well, her house, his house, whichever house, we're back in the set of his house in the village. Yeah. But here we now realise that he is... He's in the real one. He's not in. He's not in. You know, some artificial environment, and we're seeing him in his own place. And so it's it's that strange thing of it being very familiar, but also he's like for a while he's experienced this environment as part of the village, but now he's almost back home again. And in fact, he he does some of the things which he does in the village, like he you know he looks through the curtains where he expects <laughs> to see Paul Marion, and it's not there. You know, he he picks up the phone and expects probably there to be some village operator on the other end. It's all it's all this strange thing where he's been conditioned to experience this environment a certain way, even after potentially quite a short time in the village. And now he's trying to figure out exactly what's going on because he knows that actually maybe he is back home in the real world. It's There's still a period of acceptance that he's going through given that he knows how nefarious the village are when it comes to making artificial realities around, uh, around him. Yeah, because... Everything that was once normal must now seem strange to him to look out the window and see London skyscrapers rather than Paul Marion. Yeah, and it's all associated with the village. It's not associated with home, so it takes time to adjust. It's the 18th of March, (laughs) which means tomorrow is his birthday. Yeah, so this actually is in keeping with what's been um, laid out already in Arrival. So we know that the birthday of Patrick McGowan and indeed number six is the 19th of March so it's almost one of those moments where it also emphasizes that he is in the real world Mm. um the fact that you know in a in a meta way as well um you know this is this is Patrick McGowan as number six back in the real world it's almost to make you think that he is back in a safe environment again so this is one of those episodes which unusually for the prisoner does actually take place on a specific time it's it's number six's birthday mm. and indeed patrick mcgowan's birthday so you know the episode ends on march 19th with the village giving number six a little birthday treat of a, a trip outside but uh obviously not with the uh, ability to come back and wipe the village off the face of the earth as he'd like to do <laughs> so this is something that confuses me mm. in the schizoid man in the in at the beginning of the schizoid man, it's February tenth. Yeah, and then they make him think it's February the eleventh later on, but actually enough time has passed for him to grow a moustache. Yeah, 
and have his brain trained. So that's got to be a couple of weeks, however long, after what was perceived to be February 10th. And we know that it's now March 19th, but he was at sea for 25 days. Mm. So how is that possible? Well, so I suppose this could be happening in different years. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Which is a very bleak outcome for what's happening. Obviously, we don't necessarily have to take the the dates as being, you know, relevant relative to each other, I suppose. Um, But it is kind of interesting that is there is there even a chance that this whole thing is a ruse as well? It's not really March nineteenth, yeah. <laughs> very possibly. You know, there are so many. You know, maybe because this was the one bit of information that was missing from his file in some way. Are they are they simply playing a game based on that bit of information? <laughs> because he only sees the date in his old house. Yeah. In Mrs. Butterworth's house. He doesn't see it anywhere else. He doesn't pick up a newspaper and mm. actually check what date it is. He he doesn't get that information from a source which is reliable in any way. Mm. But if you go back to what was said in Arrival, you know, the one thing missing from his file was his date of birth. And he gives it to them as the missing piece of information. And I would almost like to view this as the village showing what they can do with the kind of information that he gives them. You know, they completely can turn his life and his perception of his own existence upside down <laughs> just with this extra fact that he has provided to them. Mm. Um, you know, that takes on a really sinister turn. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing he, uh, he thought he could rely on, and the one bit of information that he had, that the village didn't have, he gave to the village and they used it against him. Yeah, and the maid brings in sandwiches and tea for Mrs Butterworth in a very similar way to the way the butler would bring in refreshments for number two in the Green Dome, Mm. except now we're in Buckingham Place instead. Uh, And they have a very nice kind of chit-chat where he's he's clearly starving and he polishes off the entire plate of sandwiches, Mm. which always makes me hungry when I watch this. I immediately (laughs) start craving sandwiches and afternoon tea. And um, he starts trying to convince her that this was his house by describing things about it, like the fact that the bathroom door slides in one particular direction and the hot and cold taps are on the wrong way round, and mentioning all these little details, like the engine number on the car, Hmm. intended to try and convince her that he is telling the truth. And this is the first of many times in this episode where he will have to desperately try and convince people that he's telling the truth, mm-hmm. that he's giving them real information um, because they're inclined to not believe him. Yeah, and it ties with the fact that there are there are details which don't make sense here. So um, he wants to see uh, the car logbook, he wants to see the lease on the house, and it creates doubt because um I think the lease is the lease is new, isn't it? Yeah, but it's like different a, estate agents. Yeah, it's a rework. You know, it's a it's a revised version. So the original is gone, and Mrs. Butterworth has got a new copy of it, which uh, which implies that it's there to create an element of doubt. So even though he knows that he has all these intricate details about the fabric of the house and the car that make him know that this is his house, it's it's also strange that 
the paperwork that would ultimately identify this as his is missing. Yeah, it's like the bureaucracy that would prove his existence has been systematically erased when his card got X'd out and mm. and shuffled into the resign drawer. The logbook on the car is new and Mrs Butterworth's name is the first one on it. So it's as if his ownership of the car had never happened. Mm. Um, I think there's there's that quote that he gives, which is that the lease has been renewed, all that's missing is a body, <laughs> as as if he had died, but he hadn't even left a body behind to prove that he had once been there. Mm. He's just, someone snapped his fingers and removed him from the world. Yeah, it's strange because it's it's that sense of playing with him being confident with how familiar everything is and and also knowing a certain amount of information but constantly creating that that little niggle of doubt by him knowing all these details about the house but then making him question things uh, based on the fact that he that there are little details that don't that, that don't tally yeah and it's it's proof that whoever has orchestrated what has happened to him has the power to remove him from society almost mm. entirely by removing him from any official documents that might have proved he was once there, but does not have the power to remove from his mind facts that he knows which prove to him that he was once there. So his proof of his existence is now almost entirely within his own head. He thinks, therefore he is. <laughs> I know you mentioned it at the beginning, but it's also quite striking that you know it took 20 minutes of the episode which is a long time to you know to put into something without having any dialogue mm. and now you know it's sort of two-thirds of the way in and we're only getting into the meat of his interactions with other people <laughs> so it just plays with the whole structure of the whole thing to allow them to make an episode which is just so strange you know and to, to place him in in a in his own prison but rather than it being the village it's in his own life yeah she starts looking around in the room for the documents that he wants to see and it reminds me of the bit in the schizoid man where they're convincing him that he's number 12 and he's waking up in number 12's cottage mm. but can't figure out where things are i think at one point he's, is he looking for um scissors or something mm. like that and he's he's rummaging around in in drawers and looking for them because it's not really where he lives and he doesn't know where everything is. But now, you've got a complete stranger living in his house who does know where everything is, um, more so than he does because she's changed some things. Yeah, and I love all the little details that. Um, so we we've discussed them in earlier episodes, but we always see sort of unusual things like you know desk lamps and statues and all these <laughs> and. We've spoken a lot about them in terms of how they fit within, in some way, you know, some of the themes of the episode, whether it's doubles or, you know, etc. But what's strange is that when we're looking around number six's actual home, we see all those things there originally. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, we, we look at some of these trinkets around his house as strange things which are a product of the village. In reality, these were all part of his own life anyway. Mm. It's just, I suppose, as we're going through these episodes, we assign meaning to them that potentially isn't even there in the first place. <laughs> so he wants to head off to make a couple of calls for people. He says one in the city and one in the country. 
uh, but she convinces him not to go in the state that he's in and that he should, um, you know, have a bath and have some of her late husband's clothes to go out in. Yeah, it's a bit sinister that as well, because there were references to that, you know, to the husband. Yeah. But we, I think, all they say is at some point that he passed away a long time ago. And the episode takes on a, a strangeness to it if we start following what happens, if they start referencing this absent person in her life, given that potentially this is all a ruse anyway, mm. um, and that he is the absent person in his own life now, <laughs> uh, having been extracted from here and taken to the village. And what I like is the fact that, you know, obviously the fact that she is giving him a suit to wear, you know, the one that belonged to her late husband, obviously in keeping with her role in this episode, it's, it's not really a surprise that uh, she is giving him a suit to wear. Because, uh, you know, arguably that's what the village did. They gave him a uniform to, to define him in some way. And he's almost lulled into a sense of uh, believing her and, and trusting her too much. And he's ended up in a strange kind of way in a trap which has been set by the village because he's falling into some of the same routines that were thrust upon him in the village. Now he's just accepting them because he's, he's starting to believe that he is maybe on his route to, to freedom in some way. Yeah. So the suit may not have piping on the lapels of mm. the jacket, mm. but it's still a village suit mm. underneath it all. And as she allows him to take his car or her car or whosever <laughs> car it is away, I like the fact that, I think she says bon voyage as he's leaving. <laughs> yeah, little international French. Yeah. Again, it's just a little subtle thing that you you look back on the episode afterwards and you think, were all the hints already there? It's, it's a very well-crafted episode, I think, um, especially because so much is happening in the, in the back end of the episode. Mm. And yet it's all set up with all these little lovely details throughout. Yeah. And the first thing that he does which again echoes back to Arrival, but also the opening credits of every episode. <laughs> so he drives to go and see George Markstein, a.k.a. <laughs> <laughs> the person he resigned to, um, and gets to walk in once again. But this time he's not resigning. He's presumably saying, what the hell, George? What's going on? <laughs> and indeed, this places this episode in the, in the first production block, most notably. So mm. when they were still working together on the series. Yeah. Um, so this must have been the last episode that, they, yeah. that he did, yeah. that, that he was involved in, because this was the last one shot in that first book of filming. Yeah. And it's nice that when he, he meets George Markstein, behind him is, is a map of the world. Yeah. Which is actually kind of strange, because we've seen these, uh, these maps of the world really only in the village. You know, there's that one on the giant screen in the in yeah. the room with the rotating seesaw thing. That's where we've seen these things before. I mean, obviously they're common items, but it's I well, I'd only really noticed it in this episode rather than in the opening credits of every episode <laughs> uh, that this iconography is is present in uh, in the office here and is linked to something we've seen repeatedly in the village. Yeah, and also he's got two phones on his desk. There's a regular phone and there's a pink phone. <laughs> it's not quite the red phone of doom, and it's not one of those cool curvy ones that, <laughs> that you get in the in number two's residence. But it's still a second phone in a striking colour, <laughs> standing out on his desk, a hotline to uh, who knows who. <laughs> and with it being George Markstein, who he goes to meet behind the desk, <laughs> in the script... 
the character is just called M. Ah, an M and P. M and P, yeah. Mm. Because number six is just called P, which mm. could be P for prisoner or P for Patrick. Mm. And Mark Sr. is just called M in the script, mm. which is also a, a sort of sneaky James Bond reference as well. But mainly M for Mark Steen. <laughs> <laughs> Dial M for Mark Steen. <laughs> you must forgive us, but you see, we have a problem. Uh, tell him our problem, Thor. You resign. You disappear. You return. You spin a yarn that Hans Christian Andersen would reject for a fairy tale. And we must be sure. See, people defect. An unhappy thought, but a fact of life. They defect. From one side to the other, I also have a problem. I'm not sure which side runs this village. A mutual problem. So Six now meets up with, well, at least one person he knew from his life before being in the village, mm -hmm. who is the Colonel, who's played by Donald Sinden. Yes. Who was in lots of TV shows, but for some reason when I watch this, I always remember him for being in... Never the Twain with Windsor <laughs> Davies. That's, that's the last thing I remember him being. Yeah. So it's a bit like Peter Bowles where they did lo loads of things, but then they, they become really well known for a particular sitcom <laughs> um, from the sort of late 70s, early 80s era again, yeah. uh, where they that's what they end up getting remembered for more than anything else. But yeah, he's been in loads and loads of things. He's got a very distinctive voice. Mm. Uh, instantly recognisable, even though he's, he's um, much younger in this and we really remember him being in things like Never the Twain. Yeah, and <laughs> I, don't why, I, I don't know why we're, we're spending so much time talking about Never the Twain now. Um, <laughs> new podcast idea. But this is a colonel who... It's unclear if it's, if it's the same colonel that's been referenced before and will be referenced again. Mm. Again, there are lots of uses of military titles or naval titles throughout the series. So yeah. it's unclear if this is the same colonel that's been referenced before, but in the same way we have generals, admirals, colonels. I mean, it could just be um, another another person with the title. Yeah, it's majorly confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's all. But again, that's part of the the ambiguity of these things. It's almost like a, a catch twenty two thing, having just, you know characters repeatedly called the same title. It just it's just a sense of confusion actually exists here it exists in the real world it's not it's not an artifact of the village in any way this is just strange hierarchies and and bureaucracies that get in the way mm. but the other person who is here is a character called thorpe yeah now um it doesn't really affect things here but uh patrick cargill who plays thorpe will reappear in a later episode um, he appears in hammering to anvil yeah and, he, and in that episode, he does appear as the character of number two. Yeah. But I think this is one of those cases where it's it's hard to know if that even is a spoiler of a future episode, because my guess is they were shot probably back to back or close enough in production that they would use the actor twice. But there's no obvious suggestion that it's really the same person. It could be. It may not be. Um, yeah, because if, if, if this came first... Then when he meets number two in Hammond to Anvil, he should say, what's going on, Thorpe? What are you doing here? And if it's the other way around, then when he meets Thorpe here, wouldn't he say, what the hell? I haven't seen you since you were number two back in the village. <laughs> so I don't 
I, I think it must just be a weird casting thing and they're not trying to imply anything. Even about cloning and doubles, because he would, whichever way around it was, he would still find it worthy of comment. Mm. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a strange casting thing, which doesn't make any sense to link them, whichever way you look at it. Whereas um, Mrs. Butterworth and the lady in the party, Davy and C, you can find ways to make that make sense without just saying, oh, it's just a, a weird casting thing and they didn't think mm. anyone would make anything of it. So we're in now essentially a an end game of the episode, which reflects some of the things we've seen in The Chimes of Big Ben. Yeah. So he's back amongst at least one former colleague in the form of the colonel. And he's trying to convince the colonel and Thorpe that he has managed to escape from a place called the village. He has his pictures, which have now been developed, which show for the first time that I think he is confident that he is outside of the clutches of the village. And it's clear that this is a real place and he's trying to, you know, expose it. And he must trust the people he used to work for sufficiently to believe that they can be entrusted with these pictures that reveal that there is this uh, secret place where he was taken to called the village. Yeah, because he said that he was going to, that he was going to make two calls, one in the city and one in the country. Mm. This is presumably the one in the country. Mm. So it's suggesting that this is the colonel's home, I mm. guess, or his countryside residence or something, and that he's not, he's not gone to a government building. Mm. But for whatever reason, he had to go to Mark Steen first to, I don't know, call ahead, warn, find out where he was. Mm. I don't... I don't know what the purpose was in him going there, um, other than to make a, a visual callback to the beginning yeah. of arrival. But last time he was in the city, yeah, and that was the interaction he had with, well, the other colonel and yeah. Fotheringay, which yeah. turned out to be a completely staged event within the village. So maybe that's why they're implying that after he's made initial contact in the city, he then has to make... You know, the next step is to actually make contact with the people he wants to see, but outside of that environment, because he doesn't trust the, the location that it was in originally. Yeah, so, so he obviously trusts this colonel enough that he would go to him even after everything that happened in times of Big Ben. And this seems to be the colonel's own home, because they're meeting in a library, which is actually, I think, a reused set from the general. <laughs> <laughs> they do like reusing their sets. He clearly then trusts the colonel enough to not only tell him everything, but he also trusts him to do something about it and use his position within the military, presumably, to do something about it outside the scope of whatever potential involvement the the government or military intelligence or, or whatever it is had in the village or what happened to him, if indeed they had any involvement at all. Whereas these are the people who, it seems to be, uh, are the right people to be exposing this information to, they are not necessarily believing everything he says about the village. Yeah, they're very sceptical. They point out that he resigned and disappeared and came back, and that's what double agents do. Yeah, I think, is it Thorpe who says, you spin a yarn that Hans Christian Andersen would reject for a fairy tale? Yeah. Which is another reference to fairy tales and storytelling and things like that that yeah. crops up again and again, particularly in um, 
Anthony Skeen episodes, I think. And whereas they are questioning the veracity of number six's story, I think it's interesting that he counters the whole thing by saying that not only is everything he's saying true about the village, but his fundamental concern about everything as well is that he doesn't know which side was running the village. Yeah. Uh, he, he clearly doesn't trust everyone. So although he's come to uh, the colonel with this information, he is unclear if if the village was, was run on on one side or the other, if it was at all that clear. And it's clear that we know from the episodes that there's something very, very ambiguous about everything. But it's just it just creates a sense of unease because, again, it just plays with what he trusts, who he trusts and and what his you know, what his plan is. Because he knows he's now out of the village. And there are clearly some tremendous risks involved. And he knows how powerful the village is. So he's chosen to reveal his plan, but he doesn't know exactly what the end game is. Mm. Yeah, but presumably he still wants to return and, well, escape, return and wipe it off the face of the earth. <laughs> as explained to Lee McCann's number two back in, uh, in Chimes of Big Ben. I suppose if he doesn't know... If he doesn't know who to trust, at some point he has to trust someone. Yeah. Otherwise, what's he going to do? Go on the run for the rest of his life uh, and never actually do anything to try and take the village down. If he's going to take the village down, at some point, sooner or later, he has to entrust someone with the knowledge. Mm. So I guess this colonel, who is an old friend, is the best person he can come up with. Mm. And I think it's part of the whole game that's being played here. If you take away somebody's sense of of themselves and their ability to rely on or trust anyone it's remarkable how little you have to give them to make anything seem reliable or trustworthy and here they've given him hints that he is you know this isn't this isn't the chimes of big ben trap Mm. you know he's in a real environment and uh, he is back home he's been to his original house he's meeting up with people who I think are real people. They're not doubles of people in his former life. They're teasing him with enough to make him make decisions, which, although he's not a hundred percent on, like you say, you have to trust somebody. If you trust no one, you're well. You're in the X Files, but, uh, <laughs> but if you trust no one, you're completely lost. Whereas at least you have a chance if you trust somebody. And I like the fact they play with that idea here by by lulling him into a sense of of weakness, um, by making him compromise his own threshold for uh, what he considers a person he can trust with his information. Yeah, so, so he continues to try and persuade them that the village is real. Um, they question him about this town hall that's in the headline <laughs> of the tally-ho that he's brought back. And he explains that, you know, it is in theory democratically elected and, you know, he, he could possibly have been um on the town council if he'd wanted to be so at least this places things after free-for-all yeah (laughs) there's some anchor to the rest of the series yeah although he he seems to be a bit more optimistic about his chances of ever being part of the council Hmm. given what happened in free-for-all which is that he never really had a chance at doing it but they're still skeptical about it And, and he's showing them the the photographs that he took but to them, it just looks like a sort of Italian village somewhere. So the next thing they can think to do is to check his story about how he arrived back yeah. in England. 
they send someone to question Mrs. Butterworth mm. and she confirms that, you know, he turned up on her doorstep. And there doesn't seem to be any suspicion between the person who's talking to her and questioning her and Mrs. Butterworth herself. They don't seem to be colluding. And in fact, if they were all colluding, they wouldn't really bother sending someone to ask her. That's true. But if the conspiracy is really high up, then they would want to create the sense of it being Mm. real by sending somebody quite junior in. Because then there would actually be an official report saying, yeah, we spoke to Mrs. Butterworth. And she said, yeah, that this guy claiming to be somebody called Peter Smith showed up. He was disheveled and, you know, he claimed this was his former house, etc. I mean, all these things could be corroborated in a in a certain way. And some lackey in a trench coat with a notebook yeah. isn't going to have any idea yeah. even why he's there asking the question, I suppose. But if, to completely counter that, if you believe that maybe this is all a ruse and they have sent somebody to speak to her even though they know it's all fake, it is almost like that bit in uh, The Chimes of Big Ben, which I know it has other extenuating circumstances around <laughs> it, but there's that scene where the encoded message from Six is passed to Fotheringay. Yeah. And he picks up the phone and he's talking to somebody saying, yes, I've got the message. It's very exciting that he's coming home. And so he's clearly acting like he is expecting Six to uh, have escaped from wherever he is and to be coming back to London to visit him, even though later on in the episode, we find out that the whole thing is staged and he's still in the village the whole time. Mm. So in that episode, members of the village were clearly part of the ruse by playing along even when arguably no one was around to observe them doing this. <laughs> yeah. And this could be another example of that. So Mrs. Butterworth talking to some lackey. It's almost like these scenes are there for the viewer to, to make the viewer think that's what's going on. But in a meta way, it's almost saying that we're presenting these things to you, but they're not real. And towards the end of the episode, you'll realise, given what happens, that these things are just designed to throw you off guard. You know, maybe they do this because they're revealing that uh, they needed to show number six, that they had gone and checked his story out. So that's why they send somebody to do that. Um, but they have no intention of it being a real relevant thing. Even the bit where they, they, they show, you know, a policeman uh, looking at the site of the, the fire where the Romany gypsies were. Mm. Like that. They're all things that that verify solely to the viewer that what six has experienced are real that doesn't necessarily prove that there is no conspiracy here yeah you know it you know just it just supports number six's point of view which fits with the idea of the episode being one that's presenting everything from six's perspective here he's an old old friend who never gives up The corroborating info comes back. They seem happy that he's at least telling the truth about how he turned up in England. Mm. And they start having a go at figuring out where he might have sailed from by working out from the rather crude notes that he took. Um, Day 18. (laughs) How long he was at sea, how far he might have travelled, how much he slept. They give it a fairly wide margin of error because they can't account for the tides or anything because his notes weren't that good and they come up with the idea that it might have been somewhere between 1,750 miles 
1,250 miles away from where he washed up on the south coast. Hmm. And I like the fact that because all these uh, scenes have been shown, which imply that they're going out and checking the information, again, Six must be in a situation where he knows that, one, he's back home, and two, people are taking his his claim seriously. So although, you know, you were seeing all these scenes and he's becoming convinced that they are, you know, you're believing him, we should be mindful of the fact that unlike other episodes of The Prisoner, which sometimes take place over indeterminate or indeed across episodes interleaved periods of time mm. here everything we're seeing ultimately we find out is taking place over a couple of days yeah so from between arriving at mrs butterworth's place getting the change of clothes and then heading to see his friend the colonel this is still the same day yeah so all this stuff that they've done um going and checking up on him sending a, a bobby out to to um find the romany gypsies it's, they're doing it pretty quickly if they're doing it mm. all on the same day. They decide to launch a mission to try and track down the location of the village. So we know that according to you know the maps and everything, that they think it's somewhere off the coast of Morocco. Yeah. Uh, so they know it's yeah between Spain, Portugal, Morocco. They're not really sure, but they're going to basically do sweeps in a plane. He's going to go up as well. Number six is going to go with them and have a look and see whether they can maybe observe from the air the village. Um, Obviously has a very distinct look to it. Yeah, and some strange things start happening here. I think at what point one of them keeps kind of jokingly calling him number six. And at one point he says, you know, if you you keep calling me that, I'm going to knock you out or something (laughs) like that. But you can't tell if, are they really joking or are they... Are are they one of the people who is in on this? Are any of them in on this? Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's again, it's hard to know if we're reading more into it because we become as paranoid as six in the situation. But on one hand, they have referred to the colonel as an old, old friend. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen Colin Gordon's number two in the general refer to six as an old friend. Mm -hmm. Now, in that instance, it's probably because, you know, there is... Well, there is that ambiguity of the episode order between A, B and C and the general. And the thing is, in that episode, I think we discussed this, the general appears to take place before A, B and C. Yeah. And the statement about them being old friends, it could imply that potentially the person under the guise of number two, so Colin Gordon's character, did know number six in his life before his his capture in the village in the same way there's that deleted scene from Charles Big Ben yeah, yeah where Fotheringay refers to number six somebody he went to school with yeah so in the establishment that uh, number six now works in and and uh, and and the circles he moves in he clearly is interact with people who do refer to him as you know as friends from the past but those terms can be very ambiguous when we know that the village has such far-reaching influence. Yeah, and there's a lovely Macbeth reference here where um, they're talking about the fact they're going to go out on a, on a sweep to look for the village, and if they don't find it today, they'll try again tomorrow. And I think it's the colonel who says, mm. and tomorrow, and tomorrow, <laughs> which is, uh, yes, yeah, Macbeth, tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps on this petty pace from day to day. 
again, it's just very. There's something quite, quite sinister about the whole thing if you interpret it to be the colonel being on the side of the village the whole time and playing with number six a little bit, especially because that just follows him referring to him as number six and knowing that's that's something you could do to to really annoy number six. It's not a I mean, you know, is it just a, a joke between old friends where he where actually secretly he is supporting him and trying to help him get the resources together to find the village? Or is he prodding him because he knows that there is uh, that ultimately six is is being channeled towards a, a path that will lead to uh, his failure in his plan to escape and bring down the village? Yeah. So just when it seems like um, everything's gearing up to help Six go out and find the mm. village and let people know of its existence. Watch out, here comes the Pinter Man. <laughs> Milk delivery. It's another one of those beautiful, mundane things that is so deeply sinister mm. that, that crops up in The Prisoner and a lot of other shows of its era. Um, I'm going to do a bigger tangent about this in another episode. But uh, I, mean, I haven't seen a milk float in a really long time. Mm maybe 20 years. I know some parts of the country still have them, don't they? You can still get mm. milk deliveries. But I haven't seen one in a long time. But at that time, it would have been the most normal thing in the world to see mm. a milk float pull up and deliver your milk. It would be a, a bit now like an Ocado van pulls up to deliver your groceries. <laughs> you know, it, it's something so completely normal that you see all the time that you don't even question it. And you don't question what it's doing there or what the person is doing there. But what they are doing there is sneaking into the kit room, knocking out the pilot, hmm. putting on his gear and moseying on out to the plane to join number six. But you could also argue that maybe that's part of the plan. Because you know, he, he says, oh, I'll be there in a couple of minutes. Hmm. You know, the other the other um, RAF guy or, or yeah. whoever. And he made, you know, it's the fact they don't show that person being knocked out. Fair enough, it keeps... It keeps the mystery going, so you don't know if there is a switcheroo. But maybe it's part of the ruse. Maybe he's in on it as well. And if you view it that way, again, that's the paranoid view that number six would ultimately have reflecting on these events. But you don't know if that guy knew that he would get changed into you know his proper pilot's uniform. He'd put his helmet on so he'd obscure his face. And he knew that there would be a switch that they could do that would allow a proper village pilot to then get in the plane instead. Yeah, so as they're taking off to go on their first and last mission <laughs> to find the village, the colonel makes this really odd comment to Thorpe, mm. where he says, he's an old, old friend who never gives yeah. up. Mm. And it's so beautifully ambiguous that you, you can't tell if one or the other or both or neither of them are mm. in on this. And, and whichever way it is, there's an incredible sadness that comes with it, I mm. think. That you feel that Six is, is doomed hmm. to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah, in the same way that every episode begins with him waking up in the village and, you know, very, it, well, in very few of the episodes does he does he not try to escape, you know. But his, 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 he is constantly trying to get out. He doesn't give up. He persists. And that persistence ultimately is sometimes a weakness for him. You can ultimately give him moments like this where he thinks he's safe. He lets his guard down and that's when they play even bigger tricks on him. So as they're flying, they spot the village. 
beautifully nestled into the uh, estuary at Port Marion. Just when it seems like he's hit the jackpot, the pilot turns around, says, be seeing you, and it's the milkman. He's a very versatile milkman. Delivers milk and people. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he delivers number six right back to the doorstep of the village, washed up like a milk bottle. Yeah. And the intermediate scene is some... uh... Very dodgy footage of uh, of him with a parachute. <laughs> you know, they've got all the effort to have really good stock footage of uh, of the plane and the parachute scene itself. But uh, I love the fact that they just have him sort of suspended against a sky backdrop for, uh, for a few bits. And as he lands, I think it's interesting that uh, that the cat is there again, watching him. Yeah, still sitting next to the broken pot, yeah. almost as if everything has been frozen in time since he took off in the raft. That is sitting in the exact same place. Yeah. And the broken pot hasn't moved at all. And there's something weird about the fact that not only has he been delivered back to the village, but it's still empty. Yeah. It's not like he has returned and the village has changed. So you would argue that, you know, why is he being brought back to a place? I mean, you know, everyone's gone. It's, it's, it's just as strange. and It almost seems like, you know, this event is cyclical in some way. He's been brought back to a place he got away from thinking... Everyone's gone, I can get away. But it's unclear what the reason is for bringing him back if all the other residents are gone. Yeah, so he looks around, still untouched since he left. Um, He heads back to his cottage and the water in the shower begins to flow. Yeah, the power comes back on again everywhere. The kettle boils. Yeah, and the village comes back to life. Yeah, and here comes Mrs Butterworth to wish him a very happy birthday. How did the cat get into his cottage at that point? (laughs) Well, I think we'll discuss this in Dance of the Dead, but that cat does (laughs) teleport around quite a lot. So Mrs Butterworth brings him a birthday cake, as she promised to do. Is it a fruitcake? (laughs) It it could be. She (laughs) does say that she makes a good fruitcake. (laughs) But it does have six candles on it, Yeah, which I think is a nice touch. And she says, many happy returns. And outside the band begins to play. And he looks out of the window and there are people obviously marching around in the grounds of the village. And we see uh, in the foreground, actually, the butler is back holding his holding his black and white umbrella. And, you know, it doesn't even have that sense of a long moment where he's contemplating f- his failure. Mm. It's just like the ultimate rug pull. And it's, it just leaves you with that moment that he must be in of just realising that he's been completely deceived. Yeah. And it's not a time to think about anything or contemplate what's happened. It's just they got him and that's yeah. it. And it leaves you just as lost as he is. So Mrs. Butterworth was number two all along, yeah. which is why we don't hear her voice or see her in the uh, opening credits because it would have been a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> but her badge is funny. Her number two badge is funny. Yeah, it's an inverted badge. So we have seen these white penny farthing on black badges before. But this is the first time that a number two is wearing one. And it Mm. could even be the only time that a number two is wearing one. Mm. And we do get three female number twos over the course of the series as a whole. There's, I guess, one episode, Free For All, where she's number two at the end. But she wasn't really number two all the way through, Mm. unless she was. But you didn't know. And in this one, we can presume she was number two all the way through, but nobody knew or we Mm. didn't know. And then the next one, which is going to be coming up next, Dance of the Dead, we do get a female number two all the way through the episode. 
so it's interesting that they do it in three very different ways. Mm. They're playing with your expectations as to what kind of person number two is going to be. Because mm. in most of the other cases, it is, you know, a very kind of standard civil servant type dude. Mm. Which ties into what you were saying about his initial questioning of the maid, mm. where there's his assumption that there's a master of the house. Yeah. Uh, again, all these things, it's, you know, I do like the Anthony Skeen episodes because they do they do have an element of uh, being very well crafted. I suppose a lot of, a lot of thought goes into it. And I think you don't, you know, the stories I think often don't hold up that much in the long term, but whilst you're watching them, they make for a very good 50 minute story where you completely engage, but you have to suspend your disbelief as you kind of, you know, follow all these different events. There's always little, strange things that don't make sense but you just ignore them yeah and there's a lot of connections between this and particularly a b and c in terms of what is real and what seems to be real questioning what is really happening because you see the way when he's back in his old house in london and he's still looking through the curtains as if he expects it to be something else Mm. he's questioning reality even when he is in reality itself at that point um he's not in a dream but it's almost as if he suspects that maybe it is, maybe everything is a trick. Hmm. Or ultimately, it's just a very nice birthday present from the village. <laughs> it's making me think now of what's that? What's that ridiculous film? Oh, it's um, the b- game. B- the game by David Fincher, the one with Michael Douglas and uh, Sean Penn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have all that stuff where Michael Douglas is is you know being followed by people and being chased and shot at and all these things and. I think he sees his, is it his brother, Sean Penn? Yeah. He sees him get killed and all these things happen. And it turns out at the end, it is all just this paid, but, you know, executive VIP sort of party experience that his <laughs> brother has bought for him. Yeah. Uh, to make him think that he's living in this, uh, uh, in one reality, I suppose, of all this stuff happening, whereas it's all staged and everything is designed to convince him of this. But it does drive him to the edge in the, pro- you know, in the process. Yeah, and it, and it ends with like a surprise. It's your birthday. Here's your present. Yeah, I, I can't remember if they have a cake with them, but they're all the surprise. Yeah, because his brother shows up, and he he thought he was dead earlier in the in the film. Yeah, but let's not talk about the game anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a film that no one needs to revisit. <laughs> many happy returns so that was our chat all about many happy returns we hope you enjoyed it yeah and these episodes are i suppose they are becoming a little bit like an inverted version of speed learn (laughs) (laughs) whereas the professor did not say we are basically covering 50 minutes of television in uh in under three hours sometimes (laughs) (laughs) but uh, as we promised at the beginning of the episode uh, we've now got a chat that we have with Nick Briggs from Big Finish all about many happy returns and in particular the adaptation of that that he did as part of volume two of the prisoner audio dramas uh, which is called I Met a Man Today and is probably one of my favourite episodes that they've done So, here it is. Hope you enjoy. Information. 
information. So we're delighted to be joined by Nick Briggs from Big Finish to talk all about Many Happy Returns and the Big Finish adaptation of the same episode. Hi, Nick. Hello. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to being baffled by your questions. (laughs) (laughs) Your adaptation of Many Happy Returns is in volume two of your Prisoner audio dramas. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that episode in particular, given how awkward it seems at first to imagine doing an audio version of an episode that is half silenced, really? Hmm. Well, uh, I suppose... Partly for that reason, <laughs> because people kept saying to me, you'll never do that one, will you? You know, because nobody <laughs> says anything for half the episode. And I like a challenge. Uh, and I do firmly believe that, you know, anything's possible on audio drama. And also, I think it's a fascinating story. I love the idea that suddenly, uh, and of course, the way I did it is that uh, you suddenly transplant him somewhere else. Number six is, is not in the village. Of course, in the original, you have the whole business of him escaping. But um, I like the idea of a sort of very atypical episode. And and I think The Prisoner was a lot about wrong-footing the audience, um, although staying true to the story. Actually, that's not true because The Chimes of Big Ben is, is naughty and very tricksy, the way it shows you all that stock footage of, uh, of ships and things. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I just... I just thought there were all sorts of interesting questions about identity in the story that I could uh, bring out as well. Yeah, And the decision to frame quite a bit of the episode, we don't want to give too much away in case people haven't listened to it, <laughs> to frame quite a lot of it around the character of Mrs. Butterworth or a mm. character of Mrs. Butterworth. Yes. Um, did you intend to do that right from the beginning? Yes, I wanted it. I, the the major change I've made is that, you know, because, of course, uh, well, it isn't a change, but it, it's difficult, isn't it, without giving anything away. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, in the, I think it seems fairly clear in the original episode that uh, Mrs. Butterworth or Kate Butterworth, as she is in my one, um, that Mrs. Butterworth has an agenda and that there's something oddly sinister about her. But the thing I wanted to alter is to uh, absolutely have it that she was genuine. There's a bit of a sting in the tail, but that's yet to be explained, really. Um, Mm. But yeah, I I thought, how would it alter the story if it was as much about her as it was number six? And also her her business about you know there there was a I like to pick up on little clues. There's a throwaway remark, isn't there? That that uh, when in the original she says, "Oh, you know, you're about the size of my husband's. You could wear some of his clothes." And you think, "Oh, well, what happened to her husband?" And so I've I've delved into that story as well. And the the, the strange uh, and she's a and I've made her a writer. I've made her a very imaginative person who kind of my wife is always accusing me of being far too imaginative about things you know when I when I assert that something did or didn't happen in our past and she says you are right Nick you make stuff up for a living you know you've you've fictionalized this you know and I think there is a tendency for writers to do that because writers are always trying to make sense of disparate storylines and um, you know and so we we struggle more than others I think to make sense of our lives because we have this ridiculous expectation that it should make sense I think people who don't write 
uh, are far more open to the idea of everything being momentary and about having a drink in the evening or going on holiday two weeks a year. And unfortunately, you know, fortunately, I don't, unfortunately, I don't see the world like that, which is probably... <laughs> Uh, a bad thing for me um yeah so but i've i've made her that kind of personality they always say write about what you know and i thought it would be interesting to make her a writer and so she is having a sort of crisis about the way she thinks about her dead husband and um and th that sort of fits in with the whole business of uh, number 6 worrying about the identity of his um, former partner Janet who isn't in this episode but it's sort of yeah the more I talk about it the less sense it makes basically <laughs> defeating my own object <laughs> and it, it effectively means that we begin I met a man today which is the name of the audio drama mm. adaptation halfway in the story with somebody opening the door and there's number six on the other side, having gone through his bedraggled ocean voyage and trek across yeah. uh, to London, it then enables you to fill that first half of the episode in, in other ways into, uh, into the episode. So was that the purpose behind the, some of the interrogation stuff in order to get the first half of the episode in there somehow? Well, yes. I mean, I thought it was rather than, uh, because really the option of, uh, showing the begin the first half of the episode works well, more than the first half isn't it in the original um uh in the way they showed it in the tvs is not having that option to do it on audio unless i did something do you remember there was a radio play done in i want to say the 70s or 80s that was done with no dialogue at all and i think it might have been i may be talking absolute rubbish but i think it might have been uh, written by Andrew Sachs, you know, who played Manuel mm. in Forty Towers. But I I may have got that completely wrong. But anyway, there certainly was this drama. And I think it was half an hour and it was all kind of <laughs> and clicks and and walking down streets and opening doors and lighting matches. And, you know, I, I thought, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think that could become, although now thinking about it, I wish I had done <laughs> <laughs> There's a punching and splashing and uh, yeah and all this kind of thing. Um, I, I don't think there would have been any way to get the story across. So rather than um, make it about that, those events in sequence, I wanted to make it about someone trying to find out what had happened to him. You know, and I thought, well, what if he's already got to London and then this woman wants to know about him and then he goes to his former bosses and they want to know about it as well. So, yes, they interrogate him. And I I'd also thought of the logic of, you know, if this guy had come back having perhaps defected, I think that they would have. You know, in the original episode, it's all a bit sort of, well, come out to the country house, old chap, and we'll have a chat about it. And, you know, and I thought, well, maybe they'd be really worried about what he had betrayed, because as far as they're concerned, he went over to the Russians, really. Uh, so um, and then I just thought of one of my other favorite 60s thing, which is the, the Ipcris file. So I gave, you know, as I'm sure you spotted, an interrogation sequence that's rather like the Ipcris file thing when he's, when Harry Palmer's in a really a sort of disorientation chamber with funny noises and things. And it's, oh, it's, you know, so I thought that's what they do to him. They'd subject him to a, a quite brutal interrogation because, you know, he's a traitor potentially. So with uh, the adaptations you've done, you've sometimes done quite close adaptations of original episodes. Mm. You've done ones which are thematically 
and in terms of content, often uh, recognisable. Mm. And you've also done episodes which really excitingly are complete reimaginings of uh, of episodes which stem from a title and go in a, a wonderful new direction. When you're choosing your episodes that you'd like to adapt, do you choose them based on episodes you like or do you go, there's a seed of an idea that I'd like to take in a different direction? And how did you balance that in an episode like this, which for a lot of it in the audio drama, it is recognisable as the original episode. Yes, yes. But it does go in wonderful directions towards the end that, that suggest it's almost like an alternate version that could have existed as well. Yeah, that is such a beautiful question. And my my answer is very nearly almost almost all of those things you suggest are things that go through my mind at some point or another when I'm selecting episodes. And I do, I think I'm particularly uh, delighted... Well, sorry, someone's doing something in the garden next door. Um, I, I'm I'm in the shed. I don't know whether you can tell. Uh, I'm I'm particularly delighted when I grasp a bit of the original that just works perfectly, and I can almost, you know, preserve it exactly as it was, very nearly. You know, uh, obviously, if I'm fitting it in with other stuff, that sort of strangely delights me. I had a similar experience adapting uh, War of the Worlds for Big Finish. And uh, for an audio drama, you know, and uh, and I was always delighted when I could find bits that I thought, oh, this is this is, you know, it fits perfectly. I can tell why it was done this way. But yes, I do. I do sometimes think now, which ones do I like? I think the most, but I kind of like them all in different ways. And I'm, you know, like different ones when I'm in different frames of mind and, you know, and rewatch them and, and start picking up ideas from them. But it, it's um. It's a slightly illogical process of of inspiration, really, of rewatching and rewatching, and sometimes rereading the scripts of the original, and just uh, little questions occur to me. You know, like I said about um, Mrs. Butterworth, about you know, oh, her husband's dead. What happened there? And just exploring that, uh, and thinking, oh, what what if I looked at this story from this character's point of view? Or, uh, but living in harmony, that was. Um, for example, that is just the title. I mean, the, there was never any intention for the episode to be anything like the original. And if it is, that that is in, entirely coincidental. I don't think that, I can't think there's anything, you know. Um, and it was uh, um, Paul Simpson of um, SFB, SF Bulletin, suggested to me, I think one set in a spaceship or something. And so, and that got me thinking. And I think he might have even suggested the name Harmony. I'm I'm very anxious to give him full credit for that idea. I don't mean monetary credit, obviously. I just mean, <laughs> uh, and he he's been very nice about it and sort of said, no, 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 no. It's just a conversation. I said, well, I wanted to flag it up for you just in case, you know, uh, you know, I like people to be acknowledged. Um, yeah, it's 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 all the things you suggested uh, and perhaps more i try i use the prisoner as as uh, a way of letting my imagination go f- really free you know um I'm, I'm very much when i write other things i'm very much a nuts and bolts man about working out plots and making it all connect up and and make sense at least in at least in a plot progression way and with the prisoner i allow myself to uh take some metaphorical lsd (laughs) never done it for real you see (laughs) so as you putting out a new volume hopefully in the next uh, 12 months of um, Mm. 
uh, of the prisoner audio dramas is there a well it's kind of wishful thinking on my part but is there a plan to ultimately cover all of the episodes originally in some way uh, in the audio dramas if you could as well as adding your own to uh, uh to your series well um i'm not sure that is my plan um and in the next uh volume i kind of want to make it possible that that is the end with the possibility of coming back again but i i want to i'm even toying with calling the first episode it's down as tba the sorry the the last episode is down as tba at the moment i'm toying with either calling it tba and just keeping it like that <laughs> or or maybe even calling it the end even without a question mark or with an exclamation mark i don't know um I mean, I hope that it wouldn't be the end, but um, it might be quite fun to do that so that people can feel it's a complete representation. I mean, I think any end for the prisoner would have to be ambiguous. I don't think that, you know, you can suddenly reveal that they're in a microscopic droplet of a solution on someone's laboratory desk. I just thought of that. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not going to say that, are we? You know, or any, anything as facile as that. Like, was it obvious to you that uh, in the upcoming volume you wanted to go for adaptations or some version of uh, Free for All, The Girl Who Was Death and uh, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling? Yeah, I mean, I suppose they were the, the uh, part of my, the, the top of my list for ones that had particularly affected me at the time. Uh, free for all. I mean, I don't know whether free for all is early in the run. I remember. I seem to think it was quite early on, and I, I remember being really affected by Eric Portman's betrayal. But that uh, I did. Uh, I did write down the plot as represented in that original episode, and I hope I'm not offending anyone. But it's pretty thin. <laughs> I try. I thought, what actually does happen in this episode? I'm, luckily, I haven't. I'm just checking. I don't think I ever wrote it down i can't i can't find the file i did write it down then look at that i thought well how can i make a story out of that you know they sort of he's you know number two seems to convince him that the 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 role of number two is electable and that number six can stand for it and he initially isn't he's reluctant to do it and then sort of gets bullied into it even though he doesn't want to do it and then when they get him into it they kind of just tell him he isn't number two anymore it's just it's just it's all just kind of so there that's that's annoyed you hasn't it <laughs> you know um but of course the the power of it is that it's done with such style and it's so bewildering and incredible to watch uh, the girl who was death i remember just being completely captivated by that because that's um you know it's such a crazy story it's like uh it's like Danger Man on drugs, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> in more ways than one. And, uh, yeah, and do not forsake me, oh, my darling. Of course, you know, I've made all sorts of funny hints about Seltzman, haven't I, so far? So I thought thought it was time to uh, uh, tackle that one, even though I, I know that, you know, as I didn't know before I started doing The Prisoner for Big Finish, even though, you know, I've been a fan of the show for many, many years, as you know, I didn't know that Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling was only made like that because Patrick McGoon was doing Ice Station Zebra at the time. And so they had to find a way of making an episode that largely didn't have him in, which is why, you know, when I mentioned Sels Seltzman in the earlier uh, adaptations, 
some people said, you can't do that. That's not a proper episode. And I think, well, whatever the reasons for it being made, it is a proper episode, isn't it? It was filmed. It was broadcast. You, you know, you can't. Uh... There are many episodes of Doctor Who that were sort of like filler episodes uh, written at the last minute. And you can't say, well, they're not part of the continuity. It just has to be. So, yeah, Do Not Forsake Me Oh My Darling is going to be... You can tell, can't you, that I haven't actually written any of these so far. I'm just <laughs> I'm looking past you at a file where I've got notes written next to all the titles. <laughs> I'm, t I'm tempted to read them out, but I won't, because I'll probably change my mind. But, uh, yeah, I really must get on with it. <laughs> so I remember when we spoke, last year around the time of the 50th anniversary mm. and you said that one episode in particular that you would love to do would be the girl who was deaf but you would have to figure out a way to do it so yes. when we saw the titles get announced mm. that was quite exciting to see that that was in there i still haven't what have i what have i said oh <laughs> i'm so sorry that's really annoying isn't it for me to make noises like this <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful teaser for what you can expect. <laughs> yes, that's me reading what I've put. That's, uh, yeah. That's, well, I, it starts with a young girl visits six. She says she can't sleep because she's scared. And when she was scared, her daddy always told her a bedtime story to calm her down. That's how it begins at the moment. <laughs> anyway. Mm, okay. I don't, she wouldn't believe what it says at the ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I thought was really nice in uh, I Met a Man Today is, and it does happen a lot uh, throughout your audio dramas, is you do put in a lot of little Easter eggs for fans of The Prisoner, often references to... Uh, like Mark Stein. More familiar. Yeah, Mark Stein's <laughs> in this. Uh, the reference to Code Orange. Yes. Um, all these, you know, all these wonderful things that pop up. Can't resist yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't resist doing it. So when you're doing this, I mean, do you, do you anticipate the fact that uh, what you're also doing in some respects, maybe, is to make a series of prisoner adaptations that have their own in-universe iconography that you can sort of pick upon yourself in later episodes? Because there are some wonderful threads that in the uh, eight audio dramas so far, you know, you're starting to see little hints of things occasionally popping up and they're almost parts of your own mythology that you're that you're starting to develop yeah 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 as well yeah is yes. that going to continue in yeah yes it is going to continue yes mm -hmm. i mean i in, will inevitably do that i mean they're all borrowed from the original in some way or another mm -hmm. um but yes i, I am trying to you know uh, that excites me because the original series because of the nature of television in those days didn't do that so much you know they almost I think they felt that every single episode of a series they made, you know, or the other ITC series as well, you know, had to be you had to be able to watch it without knowing anything about the series, and 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 always in some form or another the reset button is 
is pressed at the end of the episode so that um, when they're syndicated, there's no responsibility on the broadcaster to have to bother to look at the number on the spool of film. And you know what I mean? They just put any old episode on, you know, any old order. And uh, that's, you know, been a problem, hasn't it, for prisoner fans trying to work out what order it's actually meant to be in. Is it the order it was filmed in? Probably not. It was, the, was it meant to be the order that it was originally broadcast in? Probably not. Is it the fact that no one really thought about, pro- thought about it? Probably yes. Is probably the answer, isn't it? You know, um, I mean, you couldn't do Fallout first, that's for sure. Um, that's that's about the and Fallout and Once Upon a Time. You know, you couldn't put those first. Although I'm sure in some corner of the world, someone did broadcast those two first. You know, I expect. Who knows? Yeah. So um, I don't, I can't remember what your question was. Well, it was kind of to do with you're making a really cohesive set of episodes. Yes, I'm trying to make it more yeah. like that. Absolutely. I, I yeah. you know, my wish is that you, I mean, you could listen to a couple of them out of order, I think, but they are, they are sort of heading in one direction. But I don't want to make it as, as, as nuts and boltsy as, as him saying, and last week I had a terrible time with that lady from um, Lithuania, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. But uh, yeah. I, th- I think I do want the sense that these the previous episodes have already happened to him and he is forging forward in new um, encounters. Okay. I, I like the way this in some way leads on from the Chimes of Big Ben in volume one, where uh, due to the, the sort of different technology that you've got in this version of the village, this more modern version of the village, mm. parts of the resolution of the Chimes of Big Ben are different to uh to the original well yes the same but different if i can put it that way (laughs) yes i think you can yes that sums it up perfectly (laughs) (laughs) and that has a big effect on number six's state of mind in many happy returns in what he thinks might be going Mm. on or, or might be being done to him yes yeah totally he um yes the whole business about what is and isn't real is a real problem for him because he's cottoned on to the fact that they have various methods of altering reality. There's, you know, and I suppose I play the um, American werewolf in London trick of having him wake up several times. But I think, with the, what, in which episode is that? That's the next one afterwards, isn't it? The one following I Met a Man Today. He wakes up several times, doesn't he? That's Hammer into Anvil, isn't it? Yeah. And I think by the time he's woken up for the, I don't know, fifth time or whatever it is, you're not really sure whether whether anything's real or not, you know. <laughs> Have you had um, people come to you with requests for which episodes they would like to have adapted i can't remember i'm sure rick davy at some point uh, you know <laughs> the unmutual has mentioned it and i'm sure the guys at six of one uh they they may have mentioned possible ones to me oh and there's some people i chatted to at one of the events at port mary and and i've got a feeling they said now nah, if there's one thing you do can you promise me yeah <laughs> luckily i can't remember what any of them said <laughs> It'll probably come to me when I'm in the middle of writing one. I think, oh, yes, they wanted me to do this, didn't they? (laughs) But, you know, I would say uh, that uh, in common with a lot of writers I know, most writers I've heard speak, um, that sounds like some writers don't speak, um, uh, that I'm doing this to entertain myself. That's the basis on which I work. I find, which is why I've never really amounted to anything as a writer in the broader world, because I find that when I'm trying to write for... Um, uh, when I when I know there's some powerful person standing over me who is going to maybe object to what I'm writing, uh, 
I, I, it makes my creative juices dry up and I seize, seize up, you know. And so I'm doing this for, for, you know, for people who have similar, a similar outlook to me or can be entertained by what entertains me. And that's the only way I can do it. You know, I, I do believe that you must, um, which again is because why well, I've amounted to nothing in this world. Um, you must, you must do what you believe in and not constantly try and second guess some imaginary audience who isn't you. I think some people can do it. I think they can sit down in a big room with lots of people and try and work out what will be most popular with a bunch of people. But I, to, I can't do that. You know, there was a television project that I was going to write for a while back. And I can't remember. It's one of my favourite stories. I may have said this to you before. Um, and, uh, you know, I did this whole thing where um, they gave me a lot of... They loved my storyline. And they gave me a lot... It wasn't Doctor Who, by the way. Um, they loved my storyline. And they gave, and then they gave me loads of notes about it. And I thought, oh, yeah, fine, fine. I'll change it. So I changed it the way they said. And then every criticism they came back with was about the ideas that they'd put into it. And there is this kind of madness in television where where they keep changing their minds and you're supposed to know. It's ha happened to me before on a television, on a soap I worked on. You know, and, you, and, and of course, I don't make any friends on these productions because I say, yeah, but you told me to do that, which no... No important person wants that thrown back in their face, you know. Uh, I think that I think that if someone changes their mind about something, they at least owe it to you to say, "Listen, I know I told you to do this, but I've realised I was wrong, and now, I, having seen you've done it exactly the way I told you to do it, but having seen that now, I realise that it doesn't work. So I'm sorry I sent you up the wrong path." But that doesn't happen in television. They just go, "No, that's wrong," you know. But I did say this particular mysterious thing I'm telling you about. I, I, I did say to them, I said, look, I'm old enough and ugly enough to remind you every time you do this, that this is what you told me to do. And now you're telling me it's wrong. Well, I knew it was wrong when you told me, but I'm trying to be helpful. And I did it as best as I could the way you wanted. And I said, I tell you what we'll do. I said, um, shall we just not bother doing this anymore? Well, they went, what? And I said, let's just, I said, really? I could do without this level of hassle. I mean, you're very nice people and everything. I said, I'll just go and do what I want to do somewhere else. All right, well, let's forget about it. Get someone else for the job. They went, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, just can't, can't be doing with it, you know. <laughs> this is a, any TV exec listening to this is going to go, make a note not to ever employ Nick <laughs> and they would they would be right <laughs> well I think you know although as you've explained I mean it you know it you know it's come from your your desire to make you know to make something in the prisoner universe that you would like to see and would entertain yeah, you yeah yeah um as we've said before in the podcast I mean I think uh the audio dramas are are really enjoyed by a tremendous section of the you know of the fandom I think because they really have been a you know, a really unique way to to bring the show back in in a new iteration and very successfully. So it's not just you that's being entertained. It's uh, it's all of us as well. Which that's is, really which lovely of you to say. And I yeah. And thank you very much. And I've been gratified by I haven't had anyone. I'm sure there must be some people, but I haven't had anyone get in touch and say, what you've done is rubbish and I hate it and it spoils everything about the prison. No one said that. I've had a lot of people say it's not for them and they, they're not going to try it. In particular, Tim Beddoes of Network Video. He won't he won't he won't countenance listening to it. I mean, I sent him the audio files and he said he couldn't open them. I thought, well, 
they're MP3s. I don't understand why you can't open them. Yeah, I think anyone can just press their space bar on an MP3 and it will start playing on their computer. But no, he said it didn't work. So what can I do? I think I've even sent him the CDs. It's not got Patrick McGowan in, so he's not interested. I said, I can't have Patrick McGowan in it because the poor fellow is dead. <laughs> you know, but that didn't seem to be enough. Yeah. Well, I've just had an email from Rick Davey. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it happens to all of us all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm still, you know, if I can convince Tim one day, then I'll be, I've got a pending meeting that straight after his last big, uh, the 50th anniversary event, we were going to have a meeting afterwards to sort of talk about further prisoner stuff because he videoed that episode I did live at the event. Um, and um, and then the poor fellow had a, an accident on his bike. He did, His bike sort of went over. He's perfectly fine now. But yeah, Jamie Anderson showed me a photograph that Tim had sent him from hospital with him in a most awful state. You know, I thought, oh, poor fellow. And we just, as is the way with these things, we've just never got around to organising a meeting again. So I must... Um, I really liked him, by the way. I'm just, he's just very, uh, yeah, very dubious about the whole enterprise. But then he wanted us to come along to the 50th anniversary thing and write an episode. And he was really trusting about it because he wanted me to have written it a lot earlier. And he was saying, well, you know, how, how do I know you're going to do this? And I said, well, because I said I would. <laughs> and don't worry, it'll be done. He's like, well, okay then. Jamie Anderson says you're not an idiot, so fair enough. So I have Jamie Anderson to thank for him trusting me because I think Tim was thinking, who is this nutcase? <laughs> uh, do you think there will be a release of that uh, live episode in some official capacity, either through Big Finish or... Well, they, video, they videoed it, didn't they? So, you know, um, I'd, and my, my recording of it was done from a distance, so it just sounds like someone shouting in a bathroom you know um but um because it was a strange little space inside the real in inverted commas green dome um yeah uh, but that was fun to do though i mean it was very much uh meant for that event and there were a couple of little in jokes about the executive coach that we were all allegedly traveling in which was just basically a school minibus <laughs> Which made Anne Andre Andre very ill. Poor thing, poor thing. We had to stop on the way there because oof. they went back on the train, of course. Um, and those seats, they were so small. I mean, I don't think I've got a particularly big bum, but it's my bottom wouldn't. They were for kids, those seats. You know what I mean? I couldn't get my bum in them. <laughs> But yes, it was. Sorry, you asked me about an episode. I'm talking about my bum instead. Typical, <laughs> uh, typical obfuscation. Um, yeah, it was very much for that event. Yeah, yeah. And there were some sort of in-jokes about uh, President Trump and all that kind of nonsense, weren't there? Mm. Sort of. So uh, is there an ETA for when we might expect The Prisoner, Volume 3? I think that we said, uh, didn't we say next May or something? Isn't that right? Yeah, I'll just check on the website. Hold on. Da, da, da. This is the sound of me checking the website. Uh, the prisoner. I've written. Well, it doesn't help that I've written prisoner. Prisoner. <laughs> Excuse my sniffing. Where are we? Volume three. Can we see? Yes, May twenty nineteen. So sorry, it's a bit late. <laughs> Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> I know. I mean, maybe if I get it finished early, I don't know. I could always bring it forward. But we're, we've got a very crowded release schedule at the moment. 
So, yeah. And that will give me time. And also that Mark uh, Elstop is, is away doing theatre and won't be back until the autumn. I won't blame it on him. It's my fault. He could have done it before he went away, but I didn't have it ready in time. <laughs> no, that's really exciting. I think um, the first two volumes have been absolutely fantastic. And we really can't wait to see uh, the appearance of volume three in May 2019. I can't either, but I shall have to. <laughs> and there's a lot of work between now and then. <laughs> <laughs> no it's going to be really exciting yeah I, i'm very yeah it's sort of i'm dancing around it at the moment i have about three other big writing projects on the go too so i i yes i i like to go from one to the other i write a bit on one and then i then when i'm exhausted on that i go to another thing to ref, you know refresh my um brain awesome well thank you so much for joining us nick it's been a pleasure talking to you pleasure and best of luck with everything for Volume 3, especially The Girl Who Was Deaf. <laughs> Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Information. Information. So we'd like to thank Nick Briggs from Big Finish for taking the time to chat to us about his work on the prisoner audio dramas and giving us a sneak peek at what is to come in Volume 3. Uh, I'm just really tempted to find out exactly what's on his notes regarding uh, what's going to happen in those adaptations that they're doing. And I'm very intrigued about what the mysterious episode four is going to be about. <laughs> but I'm a little sad that it might end up being the last one. Mm. I'd also like to thank the birds that were in his garden for the beautiful backdrop. The the um, acoustic backdrop that they gave <laughs> to the whole thing was actually really lovely. <laughs> I think we should start recording our podcast in the garden. So we'll put some links on the website as well. Um, but, you know, it's quite straightforward. You can find the Big Finish audio dramas available absolutely everywhere where you can buy CDs or download them. So whether it's from you know, online retailers or through places like iTunes and places where you can download them. Um, but we would heartily recommend that you actually go to the Big Finish website uh, itself because you can get uh, not only copies of the audio dramas there but they often come with like really cool bonus features when you pre-order them or download them from there as well um so it's a nice way to uh support big finish itself who do obviously not just the prisoner but a tremendous array of fantastic audio dramas some of which are originals but also some which are based on some really cool uh, genre properties most notably things like doctor who yeah and at the moment, they've got a, a offer on, which is if you pre-order Volume 3, uh, which will be coming out, well, May of next year, according to Dick Briggs, <laughs> you will also get a copy of the special Big Finish edition of Issue 1 of the Titan comic yeah. that just came out. And they'll send that to you now. You won't have to wait until next May to get that. <laughs> so you'll get that in the post. But they'll, they throw that in if you pre-order Season 3 now. Yeah, and we mentioned it at the top of the episode, but if you're interested in finding out more as well, uh, we spoke to Nick and also sound designer Ian Meadows last year for our 50th anniversary episodes. And you can find that on our website, but we'll also put it in the show notes for this episode as well, so you can find it easily. So that's a, that's a really cool chat we did last year to celebrate the 50th anniversary that covered in a lot more depth sort of what's going on with uh, Big Winch's work on The Prisoner. Yep, so next up, is our catch-up with Rick Davey from your mutual website about everything that's happening in the world of The Prisoner. 
This is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. The latest trading card set has been released for The Prisoner. Unstoppable Cards have issued the official set, which includes autograph cards and sketch cards. For a 15% discount and an exclusive Unmutual website promotional card, order via unstoppablecards.com and use the checkout code UNMUTUAL18 for the discount and bonus. More guests and attractions have been announced for the June 23rd Not A Number event at Elstree Studios. In addition to already confirmed guests Jane Merrow and John Huff, Vera Day, Britain's Marilyn Monroe, who appeared alongside Patrick McGowan in the classic film Hell Drivers, is confirmed and will take part in an on-stage Q&A about working with Patrick. Also confirmed is a display of original props, costumes and memorabilia at the event. Tickets are still available, priced at £20 each. See the Unmutual website for more details and updates. And finally, have the producers of the Mission Impossible series of films been watching The Prisoner? The forthcoming film is titled Six Fallout. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. We'd like to thank Rick for his latest news update. More to come uh, in the next episode of the Tally Ho. Yeah. And that just about wraps things up for our episode all about many happy returns. We hope you'll be happy to return in two weeks' time <laughs> when we'll be talking about Dance of the Dead. <laughs> this is the worst close of an episode ever. <laughs> I genuinely feel we should have come up with something better than that. But actually, I'm not too worried because you came up with that. And I, I'm distancing myself from that, from that just completely. <laughs> So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook. The group is Time for Cakes and Ale. Or you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. And of course on our website, which is www.timeforcakesandale.com. Uh, you can leave us a message, let us know what you think of the podcast. If you've got any cool tidbits of information about Many Happy Returns or any other episode. Or if you found any more really obscure unlicensed text-based game that you'd like to tell us about that would be awesome too uh, so please do get in touch and uh, and also leave us a review if you can yeah but that's it for our episode all about many happy returns until next time where we'll be discussing uh, dance of the dead and our special guest for that episode will be fiona moore co-author of the fallout dying to the prisoner Yep, and that's going to be a really good one. And I know that because we've already recorded it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, be be seeing seeing you. you.